Welcome to Twitch Asylum, episode number eight. So what's going on, Tom? Well, we got a lot of great responses to the last show. A lot of people posting in our forums. Although one person did post uh, that we messed up. They think they called you a dumbass, Tom. I think so. And it's because we said that the... uh, (laughs) We said? Well, I think it was me, actually. Wasn't it me? (laughs) It was me who said that uh, our podcast was bi-monthly. And it's not actually bi-monthly. No, it's, it's like twice a month. It's twice a month. It's so we have to change the about page. We have to change the RSS feed. Yeah, we're we're kind of screwed at this point. Yeah, it's going to really put a dent in the show to make that change. Yeah. So but it, we'll do it anyway, just because we do it all for the fans. Right. Um, all speaking, for the fans. Speaking of some of the people who are on our forums, I just want to have a shout out to Teal. And I want to say, Teal, you need to get the Black Pearl in, in Hexic HD. I noticed you don't have that achievement, and I do, so... <laughs> I think you need the black. One girl. thing you have that Teal doesn't. Yeah, I had to find something that he didn't already have because he really has an incredible achievement list. He got all platinum on Project Gotham Racing. <laughs> oh, he's a great gamer. And uh, let's see. Uh, I noticed Crimson Twin is playing the new X Men game, which I haven't gotten to try yet. I heard it's stunning, stunning. Um, Revenant out there. It looks like we're all rooting for you, Revenant, to get half a million on Geometry Wars. That's going to be your next <laughs> achievement, I think. Brass Monkey 2 and I am SJN are both needing an Xbox 360 and maybe going to get one. I am soon. just got one, right? Did he just get one? Yeah. Or is he going to get one? No, he got one. Cool. Okay. So everybody join up, join our uh, friends list on Xbox 360. What are we talking about this time? Well, we're going to be talking about the topic of abandonware, what it is. And we're also going to be talking about, in our retro respect section, the history of id software, the guys who created Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Quake. Many other titles. And we have a uh, special guest this time. Yes, we do. Uh, I'd like to introduce John. Oh, hello. Welcome uh, John to the our, asylum. Yeah, welcome. Thanks John is our me. resident New expert in <laughs> PC gaming, because uh, the three of us regulars are not really the biggest into PC gaming, but John knows that scene pretty well. Yeah, Tom and I play a lot of console games. Uh, you know, John's a PC guy, a Woody. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out what he does. <laughs> I'm a PC gamer, but no one cares what I think, so <laughs> they had to bring in someone to talk. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No problem. Anytime. Just come on in and, uh, and join, the, join the asylum. So, all right. It's going to be a huge show, so let's go ahead and get it started. Let's go. All right. <laughs> All right, welcome to the discussion. What are we talking about today, Tom? This discussion is about abandonware. Abandonware. Yeah, so abandonware is games that are no longer being published. Sometimes even the publisher's gone out of business. And they're just games that you can no longer buy, even if you wanted to. But is there really... I don't know if there's really a definition of abandonware. I think it's kind of what people no, have come to yeah, call it, Yeah, it's kind it, right? of an, an informal definition. There's a bunch of websites out there. Uh, there's something called Abandonware Ring that is a collection of abandonware sites. Uh, some of these ho- sites host uh, 
abandonware software for download. Now, technically, that is illegal because uh, just saying something's abandonware and no longer in print does not magically give you the right to copy it. Is there like some period of time though, like after this period of time, it does technically become abandonware? I mean. You know, if there um, was such a term, but basically, where it is legal to download it, is there a certain there, after there our is. lifetime? I, th- I believe. Okay. Is the yeah. Key. The, the thing is, there is um, stuff does go into the public domain eventually, but it takes a really long time, and we'll talk about that in in a in a minute or two. Um, the thing is, legally, copyright holders have the right to do what they want to do with the material, and that includes not selling it. So they can copyright something and decide to not publish it, and that doesn't give someone else the right to copy it. But I think what's going on here really is it's not a legal thing. It's more of a moral justification because the people who want to collect abandonware and want to make it available, um, their argument is that, first of all, there's no lost sales from this. It's not like some author or publisher is not getting paid uh, because the game isn't available for sale anyway. Uh, again, like it's on I said, eBay. Yeah, but that's, that's used, right? Yeah. Like, you might be able to get a used copy on eBay. Um, and so it's really just more a moral justification than it is a legal one. Um, to me, though, like I, I kind of have a weird perspective on this because I'm using a lot of these retro computers. Uh-huh. And I, for some reason, I see a distinction between playing them on the original computers and uh-huh. playing, playing them on today's modern hardware. So my kind of philosophy, you know, since there is no term, you know, abandonware that's, you know, what it means, I guess to me it's more of, like, if something's no longer being published and you play it on the original platform to mm-hmm. which, like, nobody really even uses that platform anymore, I see that as being, uh, I would accept that more than people who are playing these games like um, emulators on a modern PC. Because to me, like, a PC, a cell phone, or anything, these publishers, if they still exist, or even somebody uh, could get a conglomerate together and collect these and put them out on a modern system and people could buy it. So I don't really see that as being as applicable to the older computers, I guess. Right. That and makes sense. Another issue, it does. Another issue is that some of these games might be out of print for a while, but then they might be re-released on right. a new platform. Exactly. That's on a new happened platform. on Game Boy Advance where they've brought out some of the old Atari titles. We've talked about the Atari Flashback 2 that's brought back Atari stuff. Right. So in that, in that sense, if a, if a game starts out being unavailable and then it's published on a new platform... Then does that obligate you to delete your copy of it that you considered right. abandonware and buy the new one? I mean, in a way, it does because right. now it's available. Well, and even the whole the whole idea that you're justified because it's not being published anymore doesn't really hold water because uh, the the publishers, the modern publishers, will think, well, if you're playing the old games, that's time that you're not spending buying and playing the new games. Right. So it's it's still there's not even that whole the, the whole the whole idea of oh well they're not publishing it we're not they're not losing any money. That's you know that's not even technically necessarily true. Yeah, I guess my thing is I have all these little computers and uh and I can't get the software form even on eBay. A lot of software is not available. So, you know, what do I do you right. know, to get it? So one argument that's come up in some of these abandonware sites is preservation. That, you know, in 50 or 100 years, is it even realistic to think that these things will be available at all if people don't make an effort to collect them and preserve them somehow? I mean, we're really talking about preserving the history of, of gaming, right? So what do you guys think about that? Is, is that a reason to justify this abandonware collection? I think that's a noble cause, but 
if that was if that's what they were trying to do, then they would be downloading these games and saving them on you know media and putting them away, not making them available for download to the rest of the public. I I completely I. I'm down with what they're doing. I I, I I like it. I like that people are collecting abandoned wear and making it available. Um, but I just I don't know that all these justifications they're trying to throw out there necessarily aren't um, slightly self serving. Right. Well, there are definitely legal ramifications, right? For uh, you know, I mean, you could get in trouble for doing this. Have, oh yeah. Has that been the case at all? Have you heard of anybody getting trouble for uh, like a 20 year old game being copied? A lot of times, uh, since the publisher no longer even exists, that you know, if they've gone out yeah. of business, there's nobody to sue you. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna take that position and say I was the person harmed by your act and I'm gonna sue you? I mean, if the company isn't even in business anymore, see, you know, that's, that's the probably other question not I happen. have. Uh, you know, we talk. We're gonna talk about ID later. Well, one of their games or big games was uh, Wolfenstein 3D, right? Right. Well, they looked into it, and Muse Software was no longer around. And they so they could essentially go out and use Wolfenstein without paying any money. So how right. is, is that applicable to the games as well? Woody said earlier that it would be beyond our lifetime, but if the publisher isn't even around anymore, what's what's the deal there? Uh, the copyright term holds even if the copy, copyright holder is dead or the or the business has gone out of business. It doesn't matter. But if the copyright holder isn't around anymore, he can't. They won't be able to see you. And if they didn't transfer the rights, right. so that's one of those things that most companies, when they go out of business, they're actually the rights to all their stuff get sold in a fire sale. But often it's sold to lawyers or some other firm um who don't care about it but often it'll be sold like you know ea might buy up a bunch of random companies when they went out of business a long time ago so just because a company that originally published it isn't out of business you don't know or is out of business you don't know that ea doesn't own the rights now but a lot (laughs) of them could be out of business and there's no one holding the rights anymore in which case i think you'd be safe but i did think it's not you just don't know until unless you investigate each one right now, we started to talk a little while ago about, well, won't these things become public domain eventually? And the answer is sort of yes, but eventually uh, is a really long time, and it might be getting longer and longer, because copyright terms keep getting extended, at least in the United States. And I want to talk about why this is. Um, it's largely because of the influence of Disney. In 1998, Disney realized that they had a big problem, that the copyright on Mickey Mouse was about to expire in 2003. And shortly after that, copyrights on some of their other characters, Goofy and Donald Duck and so forth, were also going to expire. And they were going to lose a lot of money if anybody could just make Mickey Mouse merchandise for free and not have to pay them any licensing fees. Free the mouse. So what they did is (laughs) Disney made millions of dollars in campaign contributions and they lobbied Congress to extend the term of copyright. And it worked. Congress changed the copyright terms, and they extended it retroactively for works copyrighted after January 1st, 1923. Now, you might wonder, why would they choose to go retroactive to 1923? Why wouldn't they say just new copyrights or, or just ones from 1950 or something? Well, Mickey Mouse first appeared in 1928. So to satisfy Disney, they had to go at least back to 1928. I think they chose 1923 so that it wouldn't be the exact date. It wouldn't of be too Mouse. obvious. It wouldn't be that too they were obvious. Out <laughs> yeah, to they Disney. just like tacked yeah. on an extra five years there. But it's really because of Disney. So so theoretically, these uh, copyrights are supposed to be limited, but effectively, for our right. lifetime and more, they've been infinite. So what happens is the new wording said 
uh, works copyrighted by individuals since 1978 got life plus 70. In other words, the lifetime of the person plus 70 years. And works made by or for corporations, works for hire, got 95 years. So it's going to take 95 years for a game made today to become public domain. None of us are probably going to be around. The, the consoles probably are not going to be around. It's, it's basically not going to happen realistically. And the other thing is, the next time these same copyrights on Mickey Mouse are about to expire, they can just lobby Congress again, and they can just extend the copyright term again. So it really could wind up being forever. <laughs> That's a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. I don't care about. So, um, so what do you guys think about uh, about this? You know, what are you going to do as far as abandonware goes? Are you afraid to download the stuff and play it, even the old computer stuff? No, I say fight the power. Fight the power. <laughs> I agree. I mean, um, my old computers, I, I use this stuff all the time. So, uh, I, I really wish though that there would be some way, especially for these old games, that we would uh, be able to figure out a way that you could play them. You know, and I know a lot of publishers like. For example, um, I know Defender of the Crown um, by Cinemaware. They just make that available on their website. And there's several other companies, I think, listed. I think even if you go to the, is it the, uh, what's the Wikipedia page? Lists a bunch of software products that companies have basically said, these are what we consider abandonware, and you should go ahead and download them. So I really wish other companies would kind of get on the same boat. I mean, if they're not going to make sales from these things anymore... Uh, and especially, like I say, on the older hardware, just make them available because then we don't have to worry about any legal ramifications of them. So, yeah, I do think we have to be careful. I, you know, in this day and age, it really is actually kind of dangerous um, spreading these, you know, or share, distributing these, sharing these. People are getting sued by the recording agencies and stuff. So it's really, yeah, you are you are taking a legal risk. It should be clear when you do stuff like that, share these files or whatever. But I do think it's morally bankrupt for these corporations to be holding out these copyrights or abusing them like this. I think that's just indefensible from a moral standpoint. So what are you doing with it, Tom? Uh, I don't use abandonware myself. <laughs> I really don't. But yeah. but when something comes out like the the okay, new, so you haven't played anything on your PSP emulators. I have played a few <laughs> on the PSP emulators. Yeah, just to see what they were. Oh, uh, just to, just to see okay. investigative but, journalism. But my point okay. is, when something comes out like the new Game Boy Advance old versions of the old Atari game, I bought those. I went to the store. I bought. Right. Them. So did I. So what about you, John? Well, I'm 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 with you, you and you and Woody, Chris. I think that uh, <laughs> if, if I'm going to get a little bit of enjoyment out of it, I don't feel too bad about uh, about picking one up from from a site or, or or maybe you know something that has been released to the public domain. But it seems like uh, you know corporations could do us all a favor by at least releasing a corporate domain. They yeah. don't have to host it. Or, I mean, releasing it to the public domain. They don't yeah. have to host it or. Uh, but releasing it would be a, a nice thing. But yeah, no, I totally agree. And I do think I've seen statistics. I, th- I think I think yeah, there's probably a little wrong, but I, I think corporations make like 98 percent of their profits and revenues in the first two years of a release of some work. So it's really not that they're losing any significant revenue with these 20 year old games. But all right, well, I think we've kind of talked enough about abandonware. So. Uh, so I'm not sure there's no conclusion on it. It's just a topic we wanted to discuss because uh, it obviously comes up because we're into these retro computers and retro games. So I uh, thought it'd be a decent topic. All right, so uh, what are we on to, Tom? We're on to talking about what we're playing. Currently playing. All right, see you in a couple minutes or a couple seconds or something like that. <laughs> Austin. Awesome.
All right. We're on to what we're playing. <laughs> All right. That was great. That was a good intro. All right. What we're playing. What are you playing, Chris? Uh, yeah. What am I playing? All right. So I've spent, uh, since the last show, I've spent a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time, but uh, I'm going to start over this segment. Let's start over, Woody. Yeah. Why are you, why are you having me start this? Because <laughs> I was stupid, dude. Okay. Yeah, one okay. more time. Go. Start over. What we're playing. <laughs> what are we playing, Chris? <laughs> All right, so uh, so last Sunday, I uh, got up really early, uh, took a shower, thought you might like to know that, and uh, I, went, <laughs> I went and waited out in front of EB Games to get my uh, nin- Nintendo DS, which I had pre-ordered. So you took the shower because you didn't want to like be all stinky in line? That's right. In front of EB Well, I knew there would be a lot of other people there in line, uh, and they were stinky, so I wanted to kind of <laughs> offset the whole stink factor, right, was okay. the idea. So, it was a DS Lite. Is that- oh, sorry, yeah, DS Lite. Oh, yeah, yes. not, not the fat the light so of course uh i guess eb didn't open until 11 so i wandered into uh target and noticed that they had like a 20 of them sitting there so i could just buy one but uh, <laughs> but, but but it's good i pre-ordered you know so i, I had yeah. one waiting for me it had a little name tag on it for me and everything so when i got there i picked it up picked up the nintendo ds and i i uh I didn't buy any games uh, immediately. What I did Why is, was that? Right. So wouldn't, wanted, you, wouldn't you naturally buy a game when you buy a new game console? Well, I figured maybe it would come with something, you know, like just <laughs> something. And I get home and there's like Pico Chat and that's it, right? So nothing included. Okay. So I, uh, I uh, went back to uh, EB Games and uh, used their... They have this thing with the DS where you can essentially just put on the Wi-Fi and download games right in the store, like demos, which is okay. pretty cool. That is cool. But you can't do it over the internet because they obviously want to get you in the store so you uh, look at oh, stuff. Oh, right. to lure you to the store. Right. Oh, and then you play the demo and then you go, oh, right. I have to buy this. And you buy so it. Yeah. so I got Mario Kart, went home, so I was playing Mario Kart, the demo, and it's just a really small demo and I basically cleared all the courses and I was like, all right, I'm bored. So I was going to go work out that night, and I took my DS with me, and EB Games was closed. So, <laughs> And it's right next to this pizza place, so I'm standing out in front of EB Games, like right up against the glass, and I'm able to get a signal, <laughs> and I'm downloading, I downloaded Brain Games. And, That's uh, great. And put on there, yeah. So, well, I'm glad they left their wireless on after the yeah, store was closed. Was that was nice I, I think the people you know, at the pizza place just thought I was insane. You know, like, why is this guy standing here with this white little device? Leaning against the glass. Yeah, yeah so I got out of the real They probably fat. thought you were... You, you were trying to rob the store somehow. That's, you had some like special robbery device. That's what I was thinking. So, <laughs> so I got home and uh, that night, and Amy and I, my wife, we played a lot of uh, Brain Age, and it's pretty cool. You know, the demo only has a couple things. Is it two player? Uh, no, but you. But see, you Tom, just what took you turns can do is you can it? switch between players. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah, we were playing it a bit, and. Um, the thing that was odd about it is it's got this one uh, game, and I, you've probably heard about this, where they show like a word and it has a color. Right. And you're supposed to say the color, not what it says, right? Right. And so I'm just I'm pegging through this thing, you know, red, and then you get to blue, and for some reason the DS seems to have a problem understanding blue. Like understanding the word blue? The word blue. When you say it? Yeah, so I'd be like, blue, and it would be like, nothing. It'd be like, I don't understand what you're saying. And Amy would try it blue, and it wouldn't understand what she's saying. So we started, like, adjusting baloo, you know. <laughs> and then I, uh, so I went on the internet, and I looked up, and everybody is having trouble with blue on this. For so what do you point. have to say? Well, it's kind of funny, though, because the people on the internet, what they were saying, one guy was like, yeah, I was sitting in Target, and I kept yelling blue at this thing, and people were walking by and thought I was insane. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But So I looked on the internet, and apparently there's other words you can say that it'll recognize, like loo. 
So instead of saying blue, I'm now I say Lou, and it's able to recognize. <laughs> so I'll probably uh, incorporate that in my daily life. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to say that in in daily life. Yeah. Oh, look at that Lou colored car. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. Uh, yeah, so we, we had a fun with that. I'm probably going to pick that one up. And, I, of course, I found out afterwards that Circuit City and a couple stores were giving away uh, Brainage if you bought the DS with a coupon. Oh. But since I pre-ordered again, I was... Out of luck. Out of luck, yeah. Or screwed, whatever. So I was looking for... Uh, you know, the DS Lite doesn't come with one of those thumb styluses, right? Yeah. So it did with the original DS. So I went around to different stores. I made the mistake of going to different stores looking for this uh, particular thing, right? So, and I went to games, uh, it's a game, game crazy. No, it's game stop, game stop. And, uh, and that, that was a big mistake. I, I don't like to go to the stores cause I think the people that work there are a bunch of morons. I'm sorry if you work at, at GameStop, but uh, <laughs> you might be the exception to the rule, but the majority of the people I believe are morons. So Why I'm, is this? What did they do? All right. Well, so I go in there and there's another couple looking at, looking at games, you know, our systems and, uh, they're looking at the DS and the DS Lite and they're, they're into it and, uh. The guy says, you know, well, what about the PS3? And the guy who's behind the counter goes, well, you know that the PS3 is going to ship without any games. What? Yeah, I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you know, Sony, this uh, guy from Sony, he said, uh, you know, gamers will buy it without any games. So they're thinking there probably won't even be any games when it launches. And he's telling the guy in the store this. I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Sony's going to ship basically an empty plastic box with no games. Yeah. There won't even be any circuitry inside. No, it. It'll just no, be an empty plastic later. box. Come later. So, and uh, people will buy it. Yeah. No, I think the guy from Sony who was saying that was was making a point. He wasn't right. saying that he was actually going to ship without but, any but games. Tom, I get that. I get that. I think, I think our listeners get that. But apparently yeah. the GameStop employee didn't quite quite get that. So then they asked about the 360. The guy's, well, don't ask me. I hate the 360. I'm like, boy, this is a great guy to have working in uh, GameStop, you know. So uh, And then they go, well, what about this DS Lite? I think we'll take one of those. He's like, well, we already sold out, but I'll sell you a DS. And at this <laughs> point, I was so like frustrated with this dude's incompetence. I just said, well, I was just at Fry's, and they had like 20 of them. And this couple's like, oh, thanks, and they left. <laughs> awesome. That's pretty funny. And then I left because they didn't have the stupid thing I was looking for either. So, yeah. I, so I've been playing a lot of Nintendo DS, I guess, Tom. The other thing I've been playing, I played a bit of Geometry Wars. Right. You know, of course, Teal had set the bar. He's like at 1.7 million. We talked about that last yeah. episode. So I went on a, on a, on, on a Geometry Wars and I got 1.79 million. Unfortunately, Teal had already got 2.1 million. Already got the 1.79. So that wasn't that cool. So I was like, you know, I'm really getting sick of this Geometry Wars music. I've been I hearing it too. over Although I liked over. it at first, and it's I, not bad. It's Yeah, but it, but it, it never varies. You know? yeah. So I, I had my uh, iPod, and I, I'd heard, I think you've done it, right? You've hooked your iPod to your 360. Yeah. Right. So I plug it into my 360, I, you know, jam up the music, and uh, you go into Geometry Wars, and it doesn't play that, that music anymore. It plays just the sound effects and your, you know, uh, music as the, as the background. Right. So immediately after doing that first game, I got uh, I got 1.9 million. So the music is what you attribute your higher score that's to? That's what, yes, it is. And uh, and that's the last time I played it because I've been, you know, busy with work. So what music were you stuff. listening to? What was the secret music that gave you the better score? I think I was listening to a band called 10 Years, which I doubt mm. you've heard of, but, um, but yeah, I was listening to them. And, uh, 
and Hawthorne Heights. A little bit of Hawthorne Heights oh. mixed in. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I was listening to that, and I haven't played the game since. Got 1.9 million, felt real good, walked away, you know, spent time with my DS. So as soon as we're done with the podcast, I'm going to get Geometry Wars going again. So Teal, you're marked man. <laughs> going, going down. down. You're going down. <laughs> to Chinatown. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the other thing I've been doing is messing with my PSP a bit. I know last episode we said that, uh, you know, like we're using them as doorstops. But no, I found a use for my PSP, and I'll talk about that when we get to the news segment. That was long. So what's going on, Tom? What are you playing? Well, it's World Cup time. I think some of our listeners are probably watching the World Cup. And in honor of that, I got uh, FIFA Germany 2006 for the Xbox 360 from Gamefly. I recommended it, didn't I? I said it was good. And I played it. And I noticed something that just just boggled my mind I, I looked at the online stuff the online play and there are people on the leaderboards whose online record in this game is something like 600 wins and 200 losses now this game hasn't even been released for that long and there are these people who've played over 800 online matches well, how did they have time to do that does it have a simulation mode or anything like that i don't know i don't know but there's something very strange going on that like Either they're spending all of their time, every every waking moment, playing FIFA 2006, or I don't know. It's, it's yeah, I think that's probably I could, it. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what what I like about this game is the player animations are real nice. The graphics are nice. The stadiums that look huge and they look great. It really gives you that feeling of being in this enormous stadium. Um, the achievements, though, I think there's only like five achievements you can get. And one of them is qualify for the World Cup, and one of them is win the World Cup. I mean, they're very simple, and they're not very interesting. Did you get them already, Tom? Um, I got qualify for the World Cup. I haven't gotten the rest so, of them so yet. So that's another game that you're getting points on that that isn't very hard. I just want to I want to make note of that because Tom also went out and rented like some <laughs> basketball games so he could get a thousand points in an hour. <laughs> well, that's true. But, uh, I know it's true. But my point is that why wouldn't they make some achievements that are at least more interesting than having you know five or so achievements that are all very simplistic? And I'm not even concerned with how hard they are to get. It's that they're not very interesting to get. And there are games that have a really nice set of achievements that, you know, even Geometry Wars has interesting achievements like pacifism where you go without shooting yeah. for a certain amount of time. So why couldn't they do that on FIFA? I just thought that they, they missed an opportunity there. EA's achievements haven't been good at all. So I think um, it just goes along with those. And then the regular listeners to the show will know that I've been waiting a long time for there to be a good motorcycle racing game on Xbox 360, and they finally released MotoGP. I got it. Um, I have to say, overall, this game is really fun, even though there are things that I really don't like about it at all. When I looked at the demo of this game, I just thought the graphics were subpar. Maybe that was just a demo. but It might have been just a demo. I haven't seen the demo. I've only seen the real game, and I think the graphics look pretty good. Um What's great about the game, let me start with what I do like. What's great about the game is online play. You can have a 16-player race on Xbox Live, and it's just a blast. It is fantastic when you get that many people all racing at once. And it's also kind of hilarious because especially if the people aren't very good or haven't played the game very much, what will happen is almost everyone will go down a straightaway really fast and then not slow down enough for the turn, and about yeah, half the people that will crash. On the demo. Yeah, and it's, it's great. Really, it's really funny to <laughs> yeah. watch. Cause I what, just go slow and then I go buy them all. <laughs> what you do is you go down the straightaway and then you pull to the inside yeah, yeah. and slow way down like you should. Yeah. Now in real life you wouldn't pull to the inside like that because in real life people wouldn't be stupid and crashing into the back of you all the time. But you pull to the inside <laughs> and then you just watch these people like five yeah, or six people yeah. just fly past you, go off the track 
fly over the handlebars and hit a fence. (laughs) And it's just funny to see that. And then, so the few players, maybe the remaining half the players who are actually pretty good and know when to put on the brakes will have their own little race. Exactly. They're they're so far ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite funny. And I like the fact that you can customize the appearance of your bike, your helmet, and your leathers. And this is really fun Leathers. in online play. <laughs> is that the lingo? Well, that's what it's called. I don't know what you would call it. It's, it's racing leathers. I, okay. Um, you can customize that appearance, and it's really fun for online play because it makes your avatars really recognizable. So when somebody passes you and online, then you, you see that same bike, that same looking guy again. You know, oh, that's that guy who passed me on the last lap. And you sort of build up these little rivalries where you're trying to, you're trying to beat the person or you recognize them or you, you know that, you know, so, so what you, they did in the previous race. And it's really interesting. It's fun. Can you recognize players by their leathers? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, and their bikes and their helmets, and I'm talking about the look. You know? we're, we're we're only laughing because we have no hobbies outside. No, of this, no. So we, we, I just like the term leathers. Me. I don't know why you like that so much. I don't know. It's funny. It makes me laugh. So also, if you're playing the single player game, um, the if you're a fan of MotoGP in real life and you watch it on TV, all the bikes and the people look exactly like they really do. And all the real racers are in the game, which also makes it fun if you know the real sport because you can be racing around like, oh, wow, I just passed Nikki Hayden or there's Valentino Rossi and they look just like him. It's really well done. Okay, now on to what I don't like about the game. Um, it's still not a real simulation. It's a little bit arcadey. Um, it's way hard to crash compared to real life. You can do all kinds of silly things. You can slam on the brakes when you're completely leaned over in a turn and that will almost never make you crash. Um, the crash resolution in multiplayer is just horrible because somebody can hit you at 100 miles an hour, you fall over and crash, and they keep on going like nothing even happened, which is completely unrealistic. I mean, if, if two bikes hit at those speeds, both bikes should crash. That's what should happen. It, there, uh, there's no excuse for why they made it like this. But I think it's meant to be fun, right? It's not meant to be realistic. I think there should be a realistic realistic mode though there should yeah. be, there should be some button you can press that's like i want a simulation i want i want bikes that really crash when they should um and i don't want this crazy you know demolition derby style crash resolution where someone can run into the back of you and you crash and they don't yeah in a lot of racing games i've seen they've had they have two modes they'll have like a simulation and an arcade mode i always and I think, the arcade I gotta say. I me too because I like easy games. Yeah. But I, I like think, I think fun. what Tom's asking for is he like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just wonder why when they put all that effort in, they couldn't have just thrown in a simulation mode because it wouldn't seem that hard. But as a developer, you say, "Oh, well, it shouldn't be that hard." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, I had my brain turned off for a minute. <laughs> so, so I don't like that part of it. Uh, I guess the only thing you can do is turn crashing off entirely in multiplayer if you don't want people to be Crash. able to. Off. Well, if you don't want people to be able to intentionally yeah, crash into you <laughs> yeah. to win... Superman mode. Yeah, I don't know. It is really funny, though. There's one other funny thing. Sometimes in multiplayer, someone will come around a corner and they'll mistake the entrance to the pits for the course. And they'll, they'll go the wrong way. And everyone behind them will just go the wrong way, too, because they're just following the people in front of them. <laughs> and it's really funny to see that happen. Um, another... Another one uh, that sometimes happens in real life is, you know, following somebody into a turn too fast. So it's funny. All right, that's it for me. What are you guys playing, John? What are you playing? Um, well, I've 
still playing a little bit of Oblivion. Oblivion yeah. on the PC, right? Oblivion on the PC, and uh, and actually just a couple days ago installed the uh, latest patch and haven't gonna, played it since. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, a lot of people on the 360 have had troubles with the patch. Uh, yeah, I have. <laughs> what kind of troubles did you have? No, you had troubles oh, not prior with, to not the with the patch. Oh, prior right. to the I had troubles patch. before the patch, and yeah, I gave up on the game. Apparently, a lot of people patched, and uh, that, now they're having more trouble. Well, so I, I'm not surprised. I guess I, I found a lot of little things that were pretty annoying. That uh, certain uh, uh, skill levels would never increase beyond a certain point, and they just happen to be like your your major or, or you know minor yeah. uh, skills, which would you know be helpful when you're uh, you know trying to increase a level or something <laughs> like that. But yeah. uh, it. I, I like the game a lot, I guess, and uh, and had had a lot of fun playing it. And uh, my my son uh, would sit there and watch, and he really liked that too. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then the other game that uh, we still play together is uh, C- Civilization Four. Oh yeah, a, that's great. Yeah, great classic. Game. Great so, game. And uh, one thing I heard about uh, about Oblivion, uh, one guy was saying that um, there was a level, at least on the 360, where it was like water based or something like that. And like there's a lot of water in it, but the game had a bug. And when he'd go there, everybody would be walking in the water, basically. <laughs> and they'd come up to him right through the water, and just like everything was going great, you know, and they'd be like up to their head in water. Like, <laughs> I'd yeah. love to see that bug. There's a few a few situations I came into like that where um, you know the, the 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 NPCs, I guess, or or, or uh, you know. They do some pretty random stuff, but I enjoyed. I guess for the most part, you you would uh, you could be walking through town and and uh, a couple of guys would be having a conversation and and uh, it's pretty ridiculous. You know, they they wouldn't say anything too interesting, but it was fun to yeah. have that kind of uh, interaction. My problem with Oblivion is I just kept trying to steal stuff. Like I'd try to see it, like you know, like in it, and then they start you know coming after me, and I just start you know was, you know shooting them you know and stuff, and it was, it was great you know with my arrows and. Uh, yes. And then eventually the guards would beat you down. Yeah, exactly. But it was kind of fun like to run around town with all these people chasing me. You know, it was pretty cool. That was my problem. I kept going into that mode. I'm like, I'm kind of a little bit bored, so I'm going to go ahead and go berserker on these people. I don't care. Well, and and that's one aspect of the game that I liked was was you could start pretty big brawls in town. If you could get a couple of people like attacking you... And then kind of circle around a little bit, and another player might hit another one (laughs) that wasn't involved, and then they would start fighting, and you could really turn a whole you know mob of people against each other. Meanwhile, you could stand back. I think Woody said he used to do that in high school. (laughs) (laughs) One of my one of my hobbies, yeah. (laughs) And the the other thing that I've been playing, I guess, recently is uh, Halo Two on the oh yeah Xbox, yeah the original Xbox. That's right, Halo Two. That's right, it's a classic. Yes, it is. All right, so what are you playing, Woody? Well, uh, the uh, in preparation for uh, our retro respect this week with ID, um, I actually I was inspired to reinstall Doom Three, which when I bought it, my machine couldn't actually play it. I remember you um, upgraded your machine just for Doom Three. Yeah, and I still never quite played it a whole lot, so I just reinstalled it. And again, I so I, I like it. It's interesting, but. Um, Again, as we'll talk about, it, it wasn't quite the same as the old school uh, Doom games, but it, it, but it's been fun. I've been yeah. uh, I've, but I've been doing that, playing that, learning, remembering all the the problems other people had when it came out. Um, but that's about it. I'm still playing uh, the Atari uh, flashback I bought. A lot of combat. 
Um, and I've actually and I and I broke out my uh, RC flight simulator again because I'm right. trying. Yeah, trying to get the bombs on the RC flight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just decided I need to practice some more because I'm actually going to try and take out my my real helicopter uh, this summer. So I really don't want to spend hundreds of dollars. Your real for RC helicopter. Yes, yes. No, no, my <laughs> Apache gunship that I, I I bought on eBay the other nice. day. I heard about that. Yeah, you're selling some of those. Yeah. So, but that's about it. So a lot of lot of repeat stuff, but um, but I've been playing more. I've been playing more games. Cool, man. All right. Well, on to the news. News you can use. Time for the news. News you can use. You already said that. I know. I like to repeat myself. All right. He does. He repeats himself <laughs> I don't, a lot. I don't have much to say. So. What's new with the PSP? What is new with the PSP, Tom? Have you been using your PSP? No, but I just saw you open up yours and you had this new fancy logo screen and something. Right, up. right. What's going okay. on? So this uh, a guy, I guess his name is Booster, released this thing, uh, DevHook.40 and .41. They were released kind of right after each other. Essentially, what it is is it's a full firmware emulation for 1.5 PSPs. Wow! Yeah, so it's very cool. You can uh, basically boot this thing up, uh, go into like 2.5 or I think even 2.6 uh, firmware, and just kind of leave it running on your PSP. Now, what's really cool about that is I, I tested it out. I went online, used a web browser from 2.5, and was able to browse the internet with my 1.5 PSP. Huh, cool. And the really cool thing about it, too, is it loads um, UMDs that are 2.5. So I, I threw in a Grand Theft Auto, and that loaded right up. Oh, nice. UMD. So you, uh, pretty much anything that's a 2.5 UMD now, you can play on this. Uh, so, uh, so to be clear, I don't have this hardware, but just so you don't confuse any listeners, this is you haven't actually upgraded your firmware. No, you I didn't upgrade... You yeah. still have the 1.5 firmware. 1.5 firmware. You run this and it emulates it so yeah. that newer games think it has the new firmware. Right. It, well, no, what it does is it essentially reboots the PSP into 2.5. Okay. So it's a full like firmware emulation. So, okay. So you can do anything that's available like on a 2.5 or whatever. And I but, guess but so, people shouldn't upgrade their firmware. They no, no, no. You should have, use this dev hook thing and it'll basically reboot. You're in that mode. Sleep mode works great. So what I do is when I'm done, I just put my PSP in sleep mode, turn it right on, and I just stay with that firmware version. Great. I mean, I've done, you know transfers on the on the firmware you know connecting it to my pc and everything works great um so yeah you can play all the umds i guess that are like two five some of the newer ones are like two six and two seven i guess there's some flakiness with those but apparently he's going to be fixing those in his subsequent version so it's really cool because now you have the best of both worlds right you got all the yeah homebrew stuff on your one five and you can play the newer games and now, uh, in our last show we talked about the mod chip for the psp so this would make that not necessary, right? Yeah, sort of obsoletes it, I guess, in a way. And uh, I, one reason I'm really happy about this is I'm not really that in, enthralled, I guess, with any of the games that are out right now. But there's a game coming out for the PSP called Loco Roco. Have you heard of that? No, what's that? Yeah, it's supposed to be a very Nintendo-y like game where you <laughs> use you know like the shoulder buttons to rotate the screen, and you have this blob that can grow and split it into pieces, and it looks really really cool. So I'm hoping when that comes out, I'll be able to play that UMD on my one one point five PSP. Cool. So big news! If you guys, I, I don't know how many people still have a one point five PSP besides uh, myself and Tom, but if you do, <laughs> this is great, um, and you should go check it out. In our next story, uh, we have some new adventure games under development. 
There's a team of students at SMU, and they've created adventure games using the Half-Life 2 engine. Right, so they're using the Source engine to create these new adventure games. And the reason I put this in, A, I think that's really cool. That you can take something that was really you know, geared for, say, like a first-person type shooter and make an adventure game out of it. But last episode, we talked a lot about comedy games and the lack of comedy games. Yeah. Well, these two adventure games are obviously comedy-based. So what, what are the games? Well, one's called Weekday Warrior, and it's kind of an office environment where, you know, somebody is sick of working in their cubicle and wants to, wants to escape. Daydream, I guess. It's kind of the idea. So yeah. it looks pretty cool. I haven't played it yet. Um, the other game is called Shantytown. And what's that And about? that's a futuristic game where... I guess the story is that the world has been overrun by some sort of fungus or something, and uh, they have these towering, tall cities, and uh, there's a girl who has a robot pet or robot companion or something who's uh, exploring this world. And No, I guess the idea is that they want to stop trash from falling on her house. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. So there's two things that strike me about the story. The first is that, of course, it would have to be students um, developing comedy and games. Um, so again, <laughs> again, we're still not seeing any you know, real publishers. Um, it has to be a, a, hey, a, a, a back project or a, a skunk works project. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, exactly what do students know about uh, office environment <laughs> comedy? Well, I, 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 <laughs> well, yeah, that's funny. They probably watch The Office. Yeah, they true, watch office. true. Uh, I, I like the European version better, yeah. personally. But, um, yeah, well, one thing I should say about these SMU students, it, it is a gaming school at SMU. Uh, so I think okay. it might be in cubicle environments. But it would still, it's still the, this, it's a school that does this comedy game, not, you know, it's still not a real mainstream ad, a publisher who's right. adopted this and yeah. put the money into it. Yeah. I just find that kind of ironic. I'm, I'm glad to see it, though. I'm, that's exciting. All right, next story. Well, I'm a big fan of the uh, the old Infocom game Zork, and now there's a new way to play it. You can play it over the phone. Right. There's a, <laughs> it's called Zoip, which I guess is Zork, Zork over, over IP. IP. Yeah. And John, you're an IT person. Uh, this is probably uh, right down, right up your alley. Yeah, this is very interesting. Use of the <laughs> asterisk uh, open source uh, PBX software. So I'm. I'm uh... And what what is a PBX? Uh, PBX, I guess, would be uh, you know a, a system that would manage a. Like a phone system in an office. Right. They uh, call it a private branch exchange. That's right. And apparently it's asterisk is an open source one. Right. So it's the stuff that lets people forward calls in an office, have voicemail boxes maybe. Maybe conference calls. I don't know. Oh, perhaps. I don't know. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. So apparently they're using this thing called asterisk. Asterisk? Is that, is that what it asterisk. is? Asterisk. Yeah, I can't pronounce it, but uh, I, I guess my DS wouldn't recognize if I said it either. <laughs> That's right. So they're using text-to-speech, right? Right. This thing called Festival, I guess, does the talking. I'm not sure if it also does the speech recognition. It may. Um, but what, what you essentially do is you call the phone number, you know, where they have this telephony device, and you speak your commands, and it reads to you where you are, like you're in a house, blah, 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 and you say, like, go north. <laughs> it'll, it'll take. That's so, awesome. So you know we've gone from you know having a you know having to have a this dedicated computer to run Zork to to putting it in uh, you know on the web to having it in cell phones and now you don't even need to download it to your cell phone you just call it up and play it. That's great. You could probably even uh, where the law allows do that in your car right driving down the road playing Zork over the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I do that, but <laughs> <laughs> sounds a little dangerous. Yeah. Sounds a little dangerous to me. Yeah. Yeah. So what else is going on? Any other news? I don't is think there? so. I don't think anything's happened this week. It's, been, it's a been a slow news week. Yeah, that's the thing. There hasn't been a lot of news. Excuse me, uh, semi-month. It's been a slow semi-month. 
Semi month. Slow news two weeks. <laughs> slow slow two week news period. Yeah. So there hasn't been a lot going on. You know, this is kind of a lull period for games right now, the whole summer months coming up. So uh so the cool thing is we're able to focus on things that aren't just modern gaming. So that's cool. So hopefully we'll keep uh, getting any interesting news stories in the future. All right, slow news week this week, but I think that about wraps it up for the news. And on to the retro respect section. Respect the retro. Welcome to the Retro Respect section. This time we're talking about id software. And we kind of came up with this topic because on a previous podcast we talked about the Apple II and the fact that Romero and Carmack from id started developing on the Apple II, so I was kind of interested in it. And then I went to the bookstore to pick up Heroes of the the uh, Computer Revolution. Which hackers. We, subtitled Heroes of the Computer oh, Revolution. Yeah, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. And I saw the book, uh, Masters of Doom uh, by David Kushner. So I went ahead and picked up a copy of that. And uh, really got into it, and I said, hey guys, we should just do a podcast on the history of id. He shoved it in our face and said, read this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, we did. did. <laughs> so they did. Hey, it was great. Um, so that's what we're talking about this time. So I guess before we kind of get into the, the topic of id, why don't we just start with the background of uh, Romero and Carmack, if that makes sense. Sure. So John Romero uh, was very into arcade games. He loved Asteroids. He would go out and win Pac-Man tournaments. And this is circa 1979. Yeah. And uh, his dad was not so enthused about him playing video games. His stepfather, I should say. His stepfather, according to the book, his stepfather would beat him when he was caught at the video game arcade when he shouldn't be. But I think, like, playing games for him was more than, like... Well, maybe it was like us, where it was an obsession. Yeah, (laughs) it definitely was. was. I think that was true for us, too. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, his, his brother told him, hey, you know, if you go to this college, there are games you can play for free on the computer. Sierra College, in fact. So he went over there, and it turned out to be Colossal Cave Adventure. And Which we talked about last time, right? Yeah, that was the same game that kind of got uh, Roberta and Ken Williams hooked, the people from Sierra. So uh, they started hanging out, playing those games, and started to become interested in the idea that, hey, you can actually program computers. You, can, you could make this yourself. You could make a game. So they spent, out time, they spent time hanging around learning to program, and so Romero's first game was a text adventure, just, just like, like Colossal Cave. Yeah. And his grades took the plunge. He was getting A's and B's, and he started getting C's and D's because he was spending all his time with computers. So I guess at that point, his stepfather went out and said, hey, you know, he's spending all his time at Sierra College. He's getting crappy grades. Let's go ahead and get the family an Apple II computer. So that's really how Romero got his his start with uh, programming. It's funny, too. The book says that his dad, even though he got him a computer, and his dad started to accept that he was programming, his dad didn't think you could make any, any money making games. He wanted right. him to develop business software, <laughs> but right. uh, Romero was not into that. He was still interested in games. And I guess for Christmas in 1982, he wanted uh, two things, a couple books, uh, one called Assembly Lines and the other the Apple Graphics Arcade Tutorial. And once he got those books, he just started writing a, a ton of games and trying to get these games published in magazines, right? Yeah, back then, 
a lot of times magazines, instead of having a, a CD-ROM that came with it, since there were no CD-ROMs then, um, they would just publish listings for games, and you would type in the listing. Like punch it, publish the source code. Yeah, they would publish yeah, the source code page. On, on paper, and you would type it in. And they'd have contests for people to write some really interesting game that wouldn't take very much source code, so that they could publish it on a few pages worth of magazine. And so he entered these contests, and his games kept getting published. Yeah, I think his first game uh, was in 1984, Scout Search, which I guess was a maze-like game, and it was published by the Apple magazine Insider, which I remember Insider. Yeah. And uh, after that, a lot of, like Tom said, a lot of his games kept getting published, and he, he actually gave his uh, company a name. It was Capital Idea Software. So he's doing this, you know, publishing these things, um, kind of becoming known as one of the, the game hackers out there. And in 1987, he went and attended Apple Fest, which I guess was a convention for Apple-based magazines, publishers, you know, and people that were into the Apple scene. So at that conference, he he met Jay Wilbur, and he's the editor who had been buying quite a few of his games at a magazine called Uptime. Uh, when they they met, they pretty much hit it off, and Romero uh, was offered a job by Jay to uh, to start uh, developing, you know, directly for uh, Uptime. But uh, I guess Romero said, like, you know. Thanks, I'll think about it, but I, you know, it was probably the beginning of the convention, right? So he started looking around, he went to Origins booth. He'd always been a fan of the Ultima series, and what was kind of funny in the book, they talk about they were showing Ultima 5, and Romero walks up there and he's like, hey, he just turns it off, puts his disc in, and the people are like, hey, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> we're showing Ultima 5 here. Boots it up and uh, shows one of the games he developed uh, right there on the computer at, at Apple Fest, and somebody there who saw it said, hey, do you need a job? And uh, Romero went ahead and took it. He took a job at Origin and moved to New Hampshire. So I think at that point, he was working at Origin, and his manager, I guess his manager at the time, is that what it was? He decided that uh, they'd had enough of Origin, and he was going to start his own company. So Romero went along with them to this new company, which, would you have left Origin back in the day? I don't yeah, that's know. Like, that's a bold move. Yeah. Well, Set it on your own. This whole thing just shows the start of the what we'll see later is the the ego that's involved in these characters. Uh, the fact that <laughs> it talked about he wanted to get a steady job for a long time. He goes to this convention. He gets offered that job by Uptime Magazine. He immediately and his first turns thought it is, down or, or I'll says, think, I'll about, think it. about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, he, and he goes over someplace else. And so I think it's the same thing. You know, he goes, he's sees a chance to do a startup and he thinks yeah i'll do that i can make that work so of course like most startups it it failed yeah you know he's out of a job not working at origin i'm surprised he couldn't go back to origin but he you know again he met jay wilbur we talked about that before at the and he turned him down so he he said well i talked to i might as well get, contact him and see if i can get a job there so he called him uh jay wilbur at uptime magazine and jay said well i'm actually leaving this job i'm gonna go take a job at soft disc in shreveport louisiana and that uh, maybe you should come along with me. So Romero joined him, and they both headed off for Softdisk. So that's kind of the background of uh, of Romero getting the Softdisk. Now, what what about Carmack? Well, Carmack's background: uh, his father was a news anchorman at a television station in Kansas City, Missouri. He was attending a great school. He was really smart. He was very into Dungeons and Dragons, and he was the guy who was going to be the dungeon master. He wasn't that into being a player, but he wanted to be the dungeon master and create worlds. And he hated school. He hated the structure of school. He went to a Catholic school, by the way, which I think is funny because he later creates these very demon-oriented games like right. uh, Zoom. Uh, but he loved arcade games, and like Romero, he saw the Apple II one day and became fascinated by it and wanted to teach himself how to program. So he started out 
just trying to hack existing games to make them do something different, maybe get some cheats. Yeah, I think what they talk about in the book is he was hacking Ultima, and right. he was giving his friends like unlimited you know, capabilities within the game, just kind of starting off hacking that. Which, if you think about it later, the mod community kind of came back and did the same stuff to their game, so it's kind of interesting the way that worked out. So when he was 12, his parents got a divorce. Uh, he moved out to the country with his dad, and he didn't have access to the Apple II anymore. And... Not having a computer, he found the book, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution, which we just talked about. <laughs> exactly. And he knew he wasn't alone. There were other people out there. So he found a group of friends that had an interest in computers, and they got into the bulletin board systems. The bulletin board system scene. I was into that back yeah, in the day. Yeah, I was too. Memories, memories. We're <laughs> going to have to, that was back have to when do you, that in another show. You yeah. get your uh, modem and call up somebody's VBS system. and yeah. leave Way messages. pre-internet. You pre-internet. Know? So yeah. what's kind of interesting, too, is a lot of people went on these BBSs looking for games... Uh, uh, and at that time, it definitely wasn't abandonware. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but in addition to that, they were there uh, playing MUDs, and you could like learn how to freak phones. They'd have these like text files you could download. Here's how you build this, you know, type of phone freak. And uh, they also talked about creating bombs. Did you read, read any yeah. of those? Yeah, there's a lot of those. So I guess uh, you know Carmack and this group they didn't have their own Apple II uh, computers, and their school wasn't uh, rich enough to have a uh, Apple II. But uh, I guess some of the competing schools did. So they had this idea of building a bomb to break into the school so they could get their own Apple II computers. It wasn't exactly a bomb. It was something that would... It was some chemical that would melt through glass. Oh, okay. And they were going to use that to break into the school and steal an Apple II. But they got caught. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the hole they created wasn't big enough for one of their larger friends. And so he reached in and flipped the latch to open the window. And which triggered the alarm. triggered the alarm. What a dumbass. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So after he got out of uh, his juvenile detention... Well, yeah, they sent him to juvenile detention center, right? For a yeah. year, I think. I think a somewhere year, yeah. 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 But when he got out, his parents bought him an Apple II. Right. I guess one of the first things he programmed was a 3D graphics rendering of the MTV logo, which I, I'm sure we all aspired to do that back in the day, right? Yep. And he made <laughs> uh, Shadow Forge, which was a game sort of like Ultimate. I remember that game, actually. Do you really? Yeah. So in 1988, uh, CarMax 18, he says, you know, I'm not doing anything except for kind of programming these things. And, and kind of like Romero, he was selling a lot of them to magazines, I guess, at the time. But he decided that wasn't enough, and he was going to go ahead and attend Kansas, uh, University of Kansas. And uh, Well, his parents really wanted him to go to school, his right. mom and stuff. And so he decided to give it a shot. And uh, immediately dropped out. Didn't work <laughs> out. <laughs> he was always kind of against any kind of structure, right? He didn't really like that. And I think, you know, throughout his life, you can kind of see that through what he's done but uh after they created a second game called wraith uh sent it to night owl publishing and those are also the people that published uh shadow forge and one of his next games i guess was a tennis based game that he sent to soft disc and that's where romero and jay wilbur went that we talked about previously um soft disc immediately signed him to design a series of games called dark designs it was a i don't really know what that was about i'm assuming it's like dungeon based or something like that but in addition to the uh, Apple II for these, these dark design games, he immediately learned how to program the IBM when it started to get popular, as well as the Apple II GS. So he was, he was like one of the first people to port between these different systems and publish those to a particular magazine. So uh, Jay begged uh, Carmack to come in for an interview for a position at, uh, at Softdisk. Because at this point, he was still doing mostly freelance. He was just making games at home and sending them in. Right. But they wanted him to actually come in and join the team. And he kept, he kept refusing. Right, exactly. For a long time. Yeah, a long time. So Softdisk uh, was run by a guy named Al... How do you pronounce that? Vacovius. 
Bacobius, and he was a f- former math professor at, at Louisiana State U- University. Uh, I guess in 1981, he decided to start uh, SoftDisk is this monthly subscription software club, kind of specializing u- in utilities. Do you remember companies like this that would yeah. have these monthly subscriptions? They'd have a monthly, like a, it was sort of like a magazine subscription. You'd get a disc every month, and the disc would contain the latest little demos and, and utilities and maybe even games. Yeah, it was mostly utilities, I think, yeah. at least early on. Um, and he thought, you know, this is kind of a cool little thing to do, make a little bit of money on the side. But by 1987, it was a $12 million company and had over 100,000 subscribers. And uh, they were producing software for multiple platforms, uh, not just Apple II, but also the PC and other platforms. So in uh, as we kind of mentioned before, in 1989, uh, they hired Jay Wilbur, who brought along Romero. Um, and they started talking about, um, as Romero came on, he said, you know, I really only want to work on games. I don't want to work on these utilities. And further, I want to work on the IBM PC because I think it's the up-and-coming platform. So he's a little uh, little cocky, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in addition, he wanted to learn how to program 8086 assembly as well as C. So he really wanted to kind of keep learning. You know, he didn't want to just be stuck in this rut doing utilities. He wanted to do games. He wanted to do on the newest platforms with the newest programming languages. So, but it kind of backfired on him because he got so good at programming on the PC that he other people within the company needed help on their utilities, so Romero was spending a lot of his time doing that. And he didn't really like that. No. He, he developed the attitude that the other developers sucked. Yeah, it I was think boring it to work on utilities. <laughs> yeah. um, he, uh, he even threatened to quit. Yeah, he said he's going to quit because he, he didn't want to do utilities. So I guess Al, the guy who was, a, who was running SoftDisk, said, uh, well, what, why don't we start this monthly or bi-monthly? It is bi-monthly, right? We wrote down bi-monthly. It is bi- Yeah, it's by every two months. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go, Spudicus. So he this <laughs> bi-monthly Gamer's Edge uh, disc that would be, uh, be games for the PC. So as we mentioned earlier, they brought in Carmack, and he was interviewing for a position uh, to work with Romero at this Gamer's Edge, for Gamer's Edge, uh, which is their gaming disc that was every two months. Right, so Carmack and Romero instantly hit it off. They had so many common interests. They were into programming games, arcade games, Dungeons and Dragons. It was like a perfect uh, partnership right. I guess from the start. When Carmack went there, he was like, it's just in a, I think he had like, do you have an MG or some kind of car? That he just, he basically went there just to drive because he thought it'd be kind <laughs> of a fun drive. He wasn't really intending to take the job, but then he went there and he's like, he actually was challenged by Romero. Well, that's what they said. It was, it was the first time he'd gone somewhere and met someone who he recognized as knowing more than he did. Right. And that just stunned him because he'd never seen that before. I, was, I had a similar thing, you know, coming out of college and stuff where I always, correctly or not, I always felt, you know, I knew so much more than most of the other students. <laughs> Don't you still and think the first that? Time, uh, yeah, but it was like <laughs> for the, when I got when I got into the real world and finally got to the, the second company I worked at. It was the first time I'd actually I met people who I thought might know more than me, and it was just a stunning experience. And I think he probably saw the same thing. He met John Romero and said, "Wow, here's someone I could actually learn something from by talking to." So he took the job. He did. Oh yeah, he took the job. So immediately, kind of you know, Romero and Carmack were kind of you know doing their own thing, and they immediately separated themselves from the rest of the soft disc team. And uh, I guess a lot of it was like they'd go in and they had their own room, they'd play loud music, they had their own fridge, they just really didn't respect anybody else working at soft disc. They pretty much thought they were inferior to them in terms <laughs> Which of... Which I, I, I believe they were. So Al, <laughs> that's probably true. Al, the guy in charge, told the team, hey, there's been a change of plans, we need to deliver two games per month. Wow. 
That's, That's a, lot. a lot. Yeah. So they decided the only way to do this was to port some of their older games. And Romero ported a game called Dangerous Dave, which was a game kind of like Donkey Kong, a, a side view platformer. And Carmack ported a game called Catacomb that was sort of like Gauntlet. And they recognized that Carmack was really good at developing an engine for games. And John was good at designing the games and creating utilities. And that, he's, like, he's more of a gamer, right? Yeah. So that split between Carmack as a technical wizard developing the game engine and Romero as the designer is a, a, a split in roles that they would continue to have for many years to come. Well, he was a designer and he was also excellent at designing the tools to build uh, the To build games. levels. And, yeah. and he was good at building the levels. Yes. So... The Gamer's Edge crew got to be friends with Tom Hall, who was the managing editor at Softdisk for the Apple II department. Right. And I guess he was a bit odd, but uh, Romero liked him. You know, he was very Apparently charismatic. Apparently he was very funny, too, and he yeah. had a weird sense of humor that Romero really related to. And since Romero and Carmack were making these games, they really needed an artist. Right, someone did produce a lot of the artwork for the game. So they, uh, I guess there was an intern, Adrian Carmack, and I have to say, he's no relation to John. Have it's you, kind of a funny coincidence that yeah. they're both named Carmack well, just, at such a small company. When I was looking this up, I was reading on the internet, and every time you see Adrian Carmack in parentheses, it would say, no, no relation. relation to John. So maybe he's better known as no relation to John. But uh, <laughs> but Adrian wasn't much of a gamer. Uh, but what was interesting is to earn money, he, would, he worked at a hospital uh, taking photos in the emergency room. So a lot of his artwork, I guess, was inspired by things he had seen in the emergency room. And you can see how later maybe that, that probably helped That him. probably paid off. <laughs> so for the game, uh, Gamer's Edge upcoming issue, they were only going to create a single game instead of the two. You know, they did their ports earlier, and now they're just focused on one game. And Carmack had this idea. He wanted to illustrate movement beyond the confines of the screen or scrolling. So back in, <laughs> back in the day, right, a lot of the games would just be one screen, or at most you'd have one screen and then you'd move outside it and you get a completely different screen. It would never, like, scroll, right? Yeah, it's funny to think back of scrolling as being, like, this incredible new technology. Yeah. But at the time, it was. They, of course, arcade games... Arcade games had scrolling, like right. Defender and so forth. But, but they it had really, custom hardware. It really hadn't been done much on, let's say, on the PC. But see, here's what I kind of find interesting about this as well, is that they're hacking away on the PC, right? And I think, uh, you know, what year is it? It's around 90 or so. And uh, But, like, I had a Commodore 64, and it had scrolling. Like, a ton of games <laughs> had scrolling. So is it, is it was it that big a deal? But I guess the PC hardware hadn't really been utilized for doing this kind of thing. Well, and this was one of their insights, that both... Carmack and Romero somehow had decided that the PC was the future. And that was part of like the, the conflict they had with their bosses and such. A soft disk was like Alvacovius. That, that none of them recognized... Nice pronunciation. Thank you. None of them recognized <laughs> that uh, the PC was the future. They still thought the Apple II seemed to have better games, seemed to do more. But somehow Carmack and Romero had both decided or seen, had foreseen that the PC was the way of the future, exactly. even if it wasn't better yet. In September of 1990, they started to develop a vertical scrolling game, sort of based on Galaga, and it was going to be called Slordex. Galaga. Galaga. And Tom Hall had come in to do some art. Yeah, he, I guess you know he was friends with Romero, so he'd sneak in at night away from his day job, as it were, uh, on the Apple II team, and he'd work with, uh, with Carmack, uh, Adrian, and, uh, and Romero to work on these games. So he was there late one night, and Carmack was like, hey, you know, I figured out a way to do these animated blocks using tiles on the screen. And Tom was like, well, that's cool. And he goes, oh, in addition, I also figured out a trick, and I can do side-scrolling. So 
you know, blocks side scrolling. What does that sound like? Uh, Mario Brothers. Right. So Tom immediately understood what that meant. He's like, well, now we, we can, you know, do our favorite game. I guess they were really into Super Mario Brothers three at the time. So they spent all night replicating the first level of Mario Brothers three. And by 5.30 a.m., they were finished. Which, to me, that's amazing. That you can do the first <laughs> level of Mario Brothers 3 in one night. In one night. Yeah. And, like, they did it, they did exact replication. Like, they had a, they recorded a video of Super Mario Brothers 3. And, and they they'd, freeze-frame freeze it on a VCR. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, reproduce the graphics pixel for pixel. So, uh, apparently, you know, it's 5.30 a.m. Uh, Romero wasn't there, so they left a note on his desk saying, you know, run this program or whatever. And when he came in in the morning and ran it, a uh, title screen came up and it said Dangerous Dave, which was the game that uh, Romero had done, you know, as a port, that old Apple II game they'd done earlier, in copyright infringement. So <laughs> so after Romero saw the demo, they all kind of gathered around and, and looked at it. And uh, Jay Wilbur, the guy that had hired Romero, said, you know, what we ought to do is take this, package it up, and send it to Nintendo and see what they want to do with it, because maybe they'll purchase it from us. So the team got together, which was uh, Romero, Carmack, uh, Jay, obviously, Adrian Carmack, and Tom Hall, and they started what they called Ideas from the Deep. And the goal was to create this you know, demo and send it off to Nintendo. But they didn't immediately leave Softdisk. They were still at Softdisk. They wanted their income. They wanted their income. So they, uh, I guess they had a four-bedroom lake house, and at night they would take the computers from Softdisk and, uh, and take them to their lake house and program there. Quote, unquote, borrow the computers right. at night. Yeah. So I guess they had a 72-hour session, and after 72 hours, they'd completed this demo of, uh, of uh, Mario that they wanted to send off to Nintendo. So Jay sent a letter off to Nintendo saying, you know, here's what we've done. We've done this on the PC. We thought you guys would be interested. Maybe you want to license it or do whatever. And uh, Nintendo said basically thanks, but no thanks. They were doing their own console, having fun with it. They weren't interested in the PC. Right. So Romero thought that they should get in contact with Scott Miller from Apogee because Scott Miller was a fan of the games that they were making over at Softdisk, and he had talked to Romero earlier about publishing their games as shareware. Now, at the time... What is shareware? Shareware is, of course, games that are given away for free usually, and you can pay for the registered version that would have extra levels or more features. Do you remember, like... uh Way back in the day. We use that term a lot, back in the day. So I'm trying to think <laughs> of do. another word, so hopefully on subsequent podcasts I won't say back in the day. But anyway, back in the day, <laughs> they would have like these trees at the computer stores filled with soft disk stuff. And yeah. they would be like numbered, and there would be like a catalog you could look through and see what you wanted and pick them off the tree, and, and you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. and there would be these big plastic bags that would right. hang down <laughs> yeah. with all the discs in them. And that's how you get your shareware games. So Scott's idea was... Let's not give away a complete game. Let's give away part of the game that has a few levels, get the player hooked, and then the player is going to pay for the complete game. Scott leveraged both BBSs and retail stores to distribute these shareware versions of games. Right. That was his distribution source. So there wasn't a whole lot of cost. He would just, you know, upload them to BBSs and get stores to, you know, stores could even copy them themselves, create their own labels and and, and uh, sell these things, so So the ideas from the Deep Team sent the demo they developed for Nintendo off to Scott. He loved it. And he wanted to use them. He wanted them to use the technology and create a title for Apogee. So I guess that's when uh, kind of Tom Hall took over. He's kind of the creative guy. We say he's kind of, I guess, weird, kind of funny guy. Came up with the concept. It would be a science fiction, semi-comic based game. Hey, comedy, comedy games. Yeah. <laughs> so the main character was going to be an eight-year-old boy genius named Billy Blaze. Yeah. And when his parents were gone, Billy would turn into Commander Keen. 
and his foes were the Vorticons. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, and in the first game, he would have to collect pieces of this rocket that was made from household items. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy <laughs> idea for a game. But um, So the team worked at uh, Gamer's Edge during the day and uh, worked at Gamer's Edge during the day and then Keen at night. Uh, and they decided they were going to go ahead and develop a trilogy of the Keen games. So the way the roles broke down was Tom was going to be the lead designer... Romero developed the game editor. Remember that theme? He's the editor guy. Carmack did the game engine. He's the engine guy. Adrian Carmack did the art, and Jay was the manager. Yeah. So in addition to writing uh, software, you know, obviously working on these games, since they had the lake house, I guess they spent a lot of time playing Dungeons & Dungeons, which a lot of them enjoyed. And they also jet skied and stuff, so it seemed like it was a pretty cool environment. And in fact, I was looking around on Romero's website, and he has pictures of the lake house. So (laughs) I'll put uh, links to that on the the show notes. It's pretty interesting to take a look at what it was like. Now their boss, Al, over at Softdisk, started to get more and more suspicious of the team. He knew something was up. But meanwhile, Scott from Apogee kept sending them checks. Yeah, to get this keen game done, so they get it released. He just kept sending them these checks. And I guess he almost went broke just sending him checks because he knew that this was going to pay off in the end, you know, with, when Keen was released. And that occurred on December 15th, 1990. Keen was uh, was released. And they gave away the first episode for free as they'd planned and charged $30 for the uh, additional two episodes. And by Christmas, I guess Keen was approaching uh, 30000 in sales. So by Christmas, we're talking the 31st, it released on the 15th. So it's kind of, it was two blowing, weeks. Yeah, <laughs> two blowing weeks. up, I would say. So at this point, Carmack and Romero decided... This was good. It's time to leave Soft Disk. Yeah. And Tom and Jay weren't so sure about that. I guess they had more loyalty. And in the book, it talks about that quite a bit. How, right. And this comes up quite a bit. And I know we don't talk about it as much. But uh, Carmack was just kind of like, he, didn't, he doesn't really have a filter. He kind of just says what he means, you know, or what he thinks. Right. And so I guess Al approached me. He's like, you know, don't don't you think you've uh, we've done a lot for you given this opportunity and su- and stuff? And he was like, well, all your developers suck, and you <laughs> couldn't pay me a dollar, or you know, you couldn't pay me a, a lot of money to stay here another day, basically, <laughs> as they left. So on February first, nineteen ninety one, ID Software was born. I remember ideas from the deep. ID. Yeah, that's how they got the name. Got the name. Um, in the early days, once Keen shipped. Carmack already started on his next-generation graphics engine. And other id employees kept creating games for Softdisk. I guess they uh, had some deal, you know, because they'd been using their equipment and stuff. I was like, well, if you guys would continue to make a game every so often, I'm not going to worry about the fact that you use our equipment and stuff to create these games. So they had to keep producing games for Softdisk, even though they had left. So, uh, but going back to the arrogance thing, they actually, when this all blew up and they were going to leave the company, oh, they yeah. tried to do, they were going to do a deal where... Um, I was going to uh, pay them like extra to make like a subdivision or a separate I version they, of the they were company. Leave. Al was going to leave with them. No, it was just he was going to fund them in this new startup mm. and then have it and then, but the profits, you know, some of the profits would go back to the company. So Romero and Carmack and every, went back to the company and they just started bragging to all the employees about how they were getting this special deal and with everything. Right. And the other employees basically went to Al and said, "Hey, you know." If you these these guys are assholes, if you keep giving them, if you're going to give them this deal, um, we're leaving. And Al said, you know, I can't lose the rest of my company on this on trying right. this. You guys screwed it up by bragging, so I, you know, I'm I can't we can't do it. So he had to back out of that. Right. But but they made a deal where for the severance because they've been using it because they've been using the machines and everything. The deal was um, their new company had to still produce a game a month for. His company, Al's company. Right. 
So I guess the first game that they worked on was Dangerous Dave in the Haunted Mansion. And unlike Keen, I guess Adrian, the guy who had worked in the emergency room taking photos, he was into this kind of you know gruesome type artwork. He didn't <laughs> really. He hated the co- he hated artwork. Keen. He hated yeah, the kid hated kitty Keen. artwork. So he really liked the fact he was creating this Haunted Mansion type game uh, with Dangerous Dave, and uh, he, he put a lot of gruesome stuff in it. That was a uh, it was kind of funny, but at the same time, it was kind of a gross type humor. So so Carmack was working on a 3D engine, and PC games back then that had 3D were usually pretty slow and not very detailed. If you think back to the old, old flight simulators where you were just seeing like a not very detailed ground and sky, you know, that was the state of the art of 3D for the most part. And they wanted a really fast action game. Um, also, there were 3D games back then that were not really real time. There were 3D right. games that would sort of draw out a view and then you'd progress and it would draw out another view. But they wanted a really fast action arcade experience. So to improve the speed, Carmack developed the ray casting technique, which means that you're drawing starting from the player's perspective and finding out what would be visible and only drawing that. Right. And also he was going to use scaled sprites for some of the objects in the game. So like not everything would be... and stuff. Yeah, not everything would be true 3D. It would be a combination of 3D with ray casting and scaling sprites. And the sprites would be like... Uh, in the real world, the analog would be cardboard cutouts. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's like having a bunch of cardboard cutouts that are positioned around. You scale them up to size so it looked like they were getting bigger as you kind of came closer in the 3D world and that kind of stuff, right? So he completed the engine in about six weeks. And in April of 91... He had used the engine to create something called Hovercraft. Have you guys ever heard of Hovercraft? No, I've, I've never, never seen no. that. Until no. I read this book, I'd never heard of it. Um, and I guess it was kind of an ugly game. That's probably why we never heard of it. But it used the technology. But it was no keen, I guess, in terms of popularity. <laughs> right. Um, and they were in, by June of 91, they were working on episodes 4, 5, and 6 of Commander Keen. And then I guess in August of 91, uh, they moved to uh, from Shrep... Shreveport to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and I guess that was based on Tom and uh, Romero's suggestion that, you know, I guess it was more of like a college-type town, and Tom thought it would be great for the team to move there, so they went ahead and, and moved the whole company away from the, the lake house uh, to Wisconsin. But they soon learned it was a big mistake, because... Yeah, they it kept was, saying it sucked. It was cold, there was no lake, it wasn't fun, um, and, and they weren't, wouldn't end up staying there all that long. But Carmack, you know, he's heads down anyway. I don't know if he'd notice because he's so into building <laughs> this. Right. His goal was, you know, Hovercraft was a cool game. It had 3D, but he wanted the first-person kind of perspective in a game. So uh, so that was kind of his goal for their next game. Mm-hmm. So remember, uh, Romero had also heard about a technique called texture mapping. Uh, a friend of him at Origin told him about it, and I guess they were going to use it for the next Ultima. So he told Carmack about it, and he said, you know, I can do that. And, and I think it sounded literally the conversation went something like, Hey, uh, you know, my friends are talking about some new technique called texture mapping. And Carmack sat for a second, and just just based on the name, Carmack sat for a second and said, Hey, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so <laughs> what mean, is texture mapping? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think it's when you map textures like onto walls and that kind of stuff. That's that's what you're trying to You're not just drawing it. It's like you can take textures, apply them to different walls. Right, so you take a picture and then picture or image, and then you map it onto a wall so that it, like follows the wall into yeah. the 3D space. Exactly. So the result of this was a game called Catacombs 3D, which is a maze game where you run around and you're shooting fireballs from the player's hand. Do you remember this game? Yeah. I told him. And, and you see your hand. Your hand's right. like at the bottom of the screen. See, because when I thought about this game, um, Catacombs 3D, back in the day, I thought 
You just said back in the day. I know, again. I'm sorry, Tom. Sorry <laughs> to fix that. But but anyway, so when I saw this game, I thought it came after Wolfenstein, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I guess it was actually prior to Wolfenstein, so I didn't know that. It's kind of cool. So Scott Miller from Apogee saw Catacombs 3D, and he said that they've got to do a shareware game with this engine. So was Catacombs 3D done for soft disk then? I'm not sure. I didn't really. It wasn't really clear, but I'm assuming it was commercial. It wasn't shareware. So obviously Scott Miller didn't publish it. Right. So it must have been soft disk. Right. So in Thanksgiving 91, it was trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, Tom wanted to keep doing more versions of Commander Keen. He's kind of stuck on Keen. But in well, a way, Keen, that was Keen like... Was his character. That was his character. And it was also a really successful game. Yeah. Oh. They probably thought of it as their bread and butter. Before, or he did. Before we no, go did. forward, uh, did you guys... Have you checked out Keen? Have you played it? I've, I've played seen it. it. I haven't... I played it um, back in the day, but uh, <laughs> I haven't played it in quite a while. So yesterday, I downloaded it and got it running on my PC to check it out. And it's, it's a really good game. Um, yeah. The interesting part, I guess... Trying to get it running is I had to run in Windows emulation mode, you know, because it's an old game. But it worked. It was kind of slow, but... And even the sound worked, so I was kind of surprised about that. But it is definitely kind of Mario-esque, but the characters are a lot, lot larger than, than Mario, you know. And uh, what was kind of interesting, too, is there is a an over-the-head view of a kind of a top-down view, and you pick where you want to go, and then all of a sudden you kind of go into this environment, which is then a side-scroller. Which, that wasn't used on the previous Mario games, but was kind of employed later. Hmm. Like, you think about, like, Super Mario World and stuff. You yeah. pick where you want to go in the end. Well, they were kind of doing that with Keen, so I'm wondering if uh, if Nintendo kind of stole that hmm. from them. Interesting. So I'm not sure. So. Well, Carmack and Romero didn't want to just continue doing Commander Keen. They wanted a 3D first-person shooter. And Romero said, remember the old Apple game, Castle Wolfenstein? What if we did that in 3D? We just talked about that on previous shows. Yeah. So... Everybody loved this idea except Tom, who still wanted to do Commander Keen. And I guess Romero wanted to go a little bit further because, you know, Wolfenstein could be pretty violent. He wanted it to be a truly shocking game and kind of shock all the gamers out there with what, with what they did in this game. So they looked into it and they found out that Muse Software, who had published the original Castle Wolfenstein, had gone back bankrupt and they had let the trademark lapse. Well, that so, was it. They, they, were, they spent a long time trying to come up with a name. What were they going to call this? And they they'd codenamed it Wolfenstein 3D. And then when they finally decided to look into it, they found out, hey, we could actually use that name. So in a way, Wolfenstein was abandonware, right? It ties into what we were saying before. And they told Scott about the idea, and he said that he would guarantee them $100,000 if they would make the game. Yeah, I guess they also decided to work with a company, FormGen, to create a commercial version of the game as well. So they were trying this hybrid, do uh, one version of shareware, but also do a commercial version, kind of to hedge or bet, you know, I guess on the shareware side. So Romero wanted the game to be as shocking as possible. He's like, the players need to be able to mow down the Nazis and all this kind of stuff. He just wanted it to be, you know, really intense. Games at the time didn't have a lot of blood. Usually you shot something and it just disappeared. So this was before games got really graphically violent. So Adrian was obviously really into this because uh, he enjoyed, you know, death and gore and drawing that kind of stuff. So this is right up his alley. And of course Tom, the uh, keen proponent, as it were was a little uh, reluctant, and he thought there was probably going to be too much violence in this game. And also, just in talking about the evolution of Carmack's engines, uh, this was for, for this one, he was going to go 3D, but the sacrifice he made at this point was he decided to draw the walls, but not draw the ceilings and floors. And that was how he was going to get the speed. Right. And pushed, I guess, by Scott uh, Miller of Apogee, they, they decided to go ahead and do the game in VGA. I guess all the previous games were EGA-based. <laughs> Which, you know, when I think back to Wolfenstein, it's really the colors 
of Wolfenstein were great. They were just yeah. so bright and yeah. vibrant. Yeah, you know, and right. even their later games were much more blue. darker. But yeah, but I like that. Yeah. It just like kind of stuck out. It's kind of like when I first saw, uh, like we talked about last time, when I first saw King's Quest, it was just so bright and vibrant. You're mm-hmm. like, wow, this is a really cool game. I remember the evolution from EGA to VGA. It was right. such a change. Exactly. So in 92, this is kind of off the beaten track of our uh, of our little history here. But an interesting aside, especially in light of what we talked about last time, is that uh, in 92, they uh, they went ahead and uh, Romero sent one of those keen games to Sierra. And uh, the team actually got to go meet Roberta and Ken Williams. The legendary yeah. Ken and Roberta. Exactly. So they showed Ken uh, what they were working on with Wolfenstein 3D, and he was he was pretty impressed and offered them $2.5 million. But but he was offering like two point five million in stock, kind of. Or is that what it was? It, I thought it was yeah. like, uh, yeah, it was a stock. What the guys wanted is they wanted a cash advance, and they asked for a hundred thousand dollars down, and Ken wouldn't go for that, and so they turned him down. And they said in the book they also kind of did that as a test. It wasn't necessarily they needed the cash or anything, but Romero wanted to be sure that uh, Ken was actually really confident in them. Right. So he said. Let's ask for a hundred thousand in cash and see if he'll pony up. And he did. Yeah, and it gets back to this this attitude of of uh, Carmack and Romero that here they are. You know, at the time, Sierra is one of the biggest, most prestigious publishers of games. Yeah, and like I said, even at that point, they legendary go, already. Legendary. They go there. They get offered two point five million, and they turn it down. And this because they don't think he's really buying into it. This enough. keeps happening again and again in the story of Romero and Carmack that they just. They want to do things their way, and if they don't get what they want, they're going to leave. They're going to do they're something sure of, else. They're sure of themselves. They're, yeah, they're very sure of themselves. So we talked about Madison sucking. So I guess <laughs> Do we was, have any listeners in Madison? Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope not. I, I don't I think Madison sucks. I'm just saying they thought it sucked. They thought, okay. yeah, I'm, not, I'm speaking for them, Tom. Okay. I'm sure people think Oregon sucks. I think Oregon sucks. <laughs> no. <You> really? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm a little depressed now. Yeah. I'm, okay, I'm so, sad. but it was cold, right? <laughs> they needed to stay inside. They couldn't go out to the lake and water ski or jet ski, right? So they played a ton of Dungeons and Dragons, and I guess Carmack was the expert dungeon master. You know, like he'd, he'd really practiced his craft, especially back when uh, he didn't have a computer. He kind of focused on Dungeons and Dragons and became like the ultimate dungeon master. So they had a long-running game, like a long-running long? campaign. It went on for years. Was it so years or months? I don't. I even... think it was years. Yeah. And it it wasn't just like you know these little disconnected adventures that had nothing to do with each other. It was a fully realized world that was going on for years and years with long-running characters. It was they were really into this stuff. So I guess Carmack wanted to test Romero and see how far he would push something. Yeah, Romero was always pushing the edges of, you know, flirting with disaster. Yeah. So uh, Carmack said, you know, there's this ability that you can obtain this mighty sword known as, uh, how do you pronounce it? Daikatana. Daikatana? Daikatana? Daikatana. Okay, whatever. Daikatana means large sword in Japanese. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, so anyway. uh, Nothing Freudian about that. So they would, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, uh, but of course, by getting this sword, they were going to risk damage to the uh, whole party because there's all these demons that could be unleashed. Right? Well, basically, to get the sword, they were making a deal with Satan, right? And it was a very dangerous thing to do because in order to get the sword, they had to give Satan this immensely powerful magical book that would allow allow him to do all kinds of evil things, and. I guess the the players argued about whether Romero ought to do this and whether it was too much of a risk. And Romero, he just wanted that sword. And so he made the deal with the devil. 
he got the sword, but then what happened? Uh, well, I think they uh, they all died. Carmack <laughs> decided that he followed the rules he'd set down for his world, and he started rolling the dice, and what it turned out was uh, it unleashed demons over the whole world and destroyed the whole universe. And he said, like, you know, that's it, game's over. And, mm. and they all asked, yeah, they, they, all said, <laughs> so they all said, can we go back and, and play again, pretending it never happened, and, and Carmack said, nope, it's over. No, we can't. Mm. So it had been years, years going, Carmack said, and I, but it was, once it was over, it was done, and they put, threw it all away. Yeah. So at that point, you know, no Dungeons and Dragons, they, and, uh, and you know, they're in Madison. They decided that Madison did truly suck and that their D&D game was uh, dead, so they, they were going to go ahead and move. Where are they going to move, Tom? Well, and find something to raise their spirits. Well, they obviously had to move someplace warmer. They actually chose Texas, Mesquite, Texas, and uh, it happened to be close to where Scott Miller was for Apogee. The guy who was doing their shareware publishing. So here's a funny coincidence. They were about to move, and they saw that the moving van had a Pac-Man machine in it. Right. Just by coincidence. Yeah. And the driver said, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of this, and he offered it to them for 150 well, bucks. The way it read, I think he was like thinking that was a lot of money. So yeah. Like, <laughs> he, well, he saw these kids, or yeah. you know, young, you know, young men, look kind of scruffy, and when he asked them for 150 bucks, he thought that, that was probably more money than they had, and that they, he was going to make fun of them. And so uh, Carmack just whips out a big roll of cash, gives them 150 bucks, and there they got the game. Yep. So they went to uh, Mesquite, Texas, as, uh, as Tom mentioned there, and uh, it was kind of apparent that Romero was almost more into playing the game than he was working on the game. So he spent a lot of time playing it, as well as contacting outside gamers, I guess people who had played their Keen series, to go ahead and help them test the game. So uh, one of the things that, uh, and this is kind of the start of where Romero maybe is focusing on other things other than working on the games, which we'll talk about more later, but... But uh, an interesting thing is that uh, Tom and Romero were pushing, because they were really the game designers at the time, right, to have these things called push walls, so that, you know, they have, doors were obvious in the game, but to have just part of the wall be a secret where you could push on it and it would open up and expose some kind of secret area. I guess they did the same thing with Keen. They had the alien alphabet. Well, that was just in games, you know, that was one of the classic things gamers look for, is the, like the secrets to find, and the, the, that's one of the interesting parts of games, and it's like, it was considered essential to anything, to have right. some secrets you could discover. But Carmack said it's an ugly hack and he wasn't going to do it. Yeah. He was kind of stubborn about it. It'd, and, be a, it'd be a problem with his engine. And so they kept badgering him, I guess, day after day, and one day, you know, they figured, yeah, he's never going to do it. Hey, Carmack, what about the, you know, hidden rooms or whatever, and he's like, you know, I already did that, mm. <laughs> so they had finally just he had changed his mind and decided that it was actually the right thing to do yeah so immediately i guess tom and romero just started started sticking these uh push walls everywhere in the game and uh the big day was on may 5th 1992 the shareware version of wolfenstein was complete and scott uploaded it to a bbs for distribution uh now what do you guys remember about wolfenstein 3d what are some of your memories what about you john well, I was gonna say I had a friend who ran a, a BBS here in Portland, and uh, and the first time I played it was on was on his PC, uh, and he had uh, um, a nicer computer than anybody else that, that we knew, and 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 had dual phone lines, which nice, was, which is Sweet. huge, dude. Uh, so with the BBS with dual phone that's lines, that's right. Death Lord's Realm was a, <laughs> a big hit for all of us, and uh, and anyway, uh, I just remember feeling uh, uh, like like we should. Uh, uh, you know, maybe like not, not let the parents see us playing this game, right. or the <laughs> sensation so of maybe we're doing something slightly wrong, but uh, we couldn't get enough of it, so uh, we we played a lot. So my uh, memories of this are kind of kind of strange because I'd gone away from PC gaming because I pretty much decided it had sucked 
because we had we had this EJ mm-hmm. computer, and you know, like I said, I was playing Commodores and stuff, and I was like, EJ graphics, you know, besides the uh, Sierra Adventure games, there's not a whole lot on the PC for me. So I'd gone more to consoles. I was playing like the Super Nintendo, the NES, those kind of things, and I was away at college. I came home for one uh, break, and I decided there used to be this place called Bugs Computer Store that was kind of near the airport. You guys remember that at all? Yeah. Probably not. Anyway, so it was kind of a cool place. Uh, you know, it was one of those non-standard, you know, standard, you know uh, computer places. It was kind of a hole in the wall, but it had really cool computers and demos running all the time. So I walk in there, and they have Wolfenstein running on this on this machine. I was blown away. It's like, man, that is amazing. That game looks amazing. Like I said, the color graphics were so vibrant. It's like I hadn't seen anything like that. And I remembered Wolfenstein from when I was young. And I was from like, the Apple II. From the yeah. Apple II. And I was like, oh, I got to have this game. And then right next to it, they also had Seventh Guest running. I remember, Do you remember that. Seventh Guest? Oh, yeah. CD-ROM-based kind of horror adventure type game. I was like... I got to get a PC. So really, Wolfenstein's one reason that I eventually got back into PC gaming is that I had to have it. Well, and uh, Seventh Guest was there too. So I think a lot of people had that kind of same response to the game because I, within the first month, they had over 100,000 in sales. And people, you know, like we mentioned earlier, they uh, Romero and Carmack would create modifications to games like, uh, like Ultima. People started creating mods for it. Do you remember these? I, I totally remember these yeah. mods. Castle Smurfenstein. Do you remember that? Yeah, they put in the Smurfs, <laughs> yeah. and there's one where they put in Barney. The Barney, I totally dinosaur. remember that because a stupid song would play over and over. And I was like, "Yeah, I get to shoot Barney. Yeah, take him down, take him down." Well, take what Barney I remember down. too is uh, being Young a programmer myself. I looked at Castle Wolfenstein. I was very impressed with what they had done with the graphics, and I started to analyze how they did it. And remember, we talked about the sprite scaling. Yeah. So the walls were 3D. But the objects in the room were just sprites. And because they were just sprites, they were like cardboard cutouts, and they looked the same from any angle. Now, you'd think that that would make the game look really weird because the walls were changing perspective and the sprites weren't. But they were clever. They chose things to be in the room like barrels. Now, what's special about a barrel? A barrel looks about the same from any point in the room. It's the same shape. And same thing with, like, candlesticks. And they cleverly chose these objects where you wouldn't notice very much that it was looking the same from every every angle you viewed it from. Good term, Woody. Man, thank you. So I admired the cleverness of how they had designed the levels and designed what was in the rooms to best make use of their graphics engine. And so we've hit on a lot of times earlier, but I guess Tom Hall wrote some paper that went along with the game or some description, and they kind of categorized Carmack and Romero. Romero was known as the surgeon, the ultimate game player, and Carmack was known as Engine John. (laughs) (laughs) So September 18th, 1992, uh, they released their commercial version of Wolfenstein for Form Gen, and that was called uh, Spear of Destiny, which it's funny now because I remember Spear of Destiny, but I didn't know what the history was that this was like. And I thought, eh, it's a lot like Wolfenstein, but I didn't really think much about it, but it was all based on they want to have a shareware and a commercial version of the game available. So even though there was controversy over the violence in Wolfenstein 3D, Nintendo still paid it $100,000 to port it to the SNES. But there were uh, restrictions, right? Yeah, they had to convert the dogs in the game into rats because yeah. people were upset about shooting dogs in the game. Yeah, they didn't care about the fact you were killing, slaughtering people. Well, they were not. But the killing of the dogs <laughs> was what bothered people. That was the big controversy. Yeah. And blood, too, right? They removed the blood. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
So with Wolfenstein and Spear of Destiny complete, Carmack started on yet another game engine. Oh, one thing we should mention before we get on to his next game engine is that one odd thing about Wolfenstein is there was no floor and ceiling. It was pretty much just yeah. walls. It was a solid color floor and ceiling. Yeah, so that would that's one way he got it to speed up. So it's like kind of yeah. running around a cubicle environment today. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so for the new engine, he wanted to be able to put a texture on the floor and ceilings. He wanted to have variable height walls, and he wanted to have sloping floors. So obviously he wanted to ramp up the expectations for the new game even more in terms of what they could do with the graphics. Tom, though, wanted to work on Commander Keen. He's kind of repetitive like a record. Yeah. Just going around. Well, uh, just around, like just the around, same way Adrian Carbeck, the artist, really hated the kitty stuff and liked working with the more gory stuff. Uh, in the same way, Tom didn't like the gory stuff and right. wanted to go back to the kitty fun comedy the stuff. Bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah. Stuff, right? So Carmack came up with the idea that they'd do a game about fighting beasts from hell. And he also came up with the name Doom. Now, until I read this book, I never knew what the name Doom came from. And it, it's a scene from a Tom Cruise movie where he's a pool hustler. The Color of Money, I believe. Yeah. And he, he brings the bag with his pool cue in it. And somebody says to him, what's in the bag? And he says, Doom. And that's where they got the name Doom. Not the game. His pool thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So in the fall of 92... It moved from the apartment they'd been in to a weird sort of cube-shaped black building. Black-windowed building, I believe. Yeah, and it's sort of appropriate that they're in this sinister-looking black building. And they decided it was time to make a break from Apogee. Right. So uh, for Doom, uh, they wanted Tom to go ahead and tell the story. After all, he was the lead game designer. And I guess Carmack didn't agree with that at all. He yeah, Carmack like, yeah. didn't think that the story was that important. And Carmack, actually, there's a quote in the book where Carmack says something like, the story in a shooting game is like the story in a porno movie. Yeah. It, it's there, but nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess he's right about that. Um, so. so Carmack continued improving the game engine, putting in lighting and shading effects. And when he started talking about the idea of lighting effects, uh, Romero asked him, well, does it have to be all decided in advance, or can, can you change the lighting dynamically? And Carmack said, we, oh, yeah, we can change it dynamically. So Romero said, oh, we've got to have strobe lights. We've got to have places where the light flickers. And he was also asking for angled walls. Right. And I guess Adrian, who we talked about quite a bit, you know, loving to make this kind of gruesome artwork. Obviously, Doom was right up his alley, right? He was able to create even more gruesome artwork than he was able to produce for Wolfenstein 3D. And they also it hired Kevin Cloud. Uh, and he was assisting Adrian to do the artwork. And what's kind of cool is that they used uh, technology known as digit. I can't pronounce Digitizing. digitization. Yeah, thank you. And they uh, digitized tons of things for Doom. They like used clay models, snakes in boots, a wound on Kevin's knee. All those kind of things were shoved into the game. So, but of course, as we mentioned, Tom wasn't into Doom at all. All of his ideas were ignored. He just wanted to go back to Keen. So in July of 1993, they fired him. And in the book, Masters of Doom. This really comes across as kind of brutal. Here's this guy who's been friends with them for many years, and he has no idea that he's about to be fired and they're unhappy with what's going on. And one day they just call him in and fire him. And it's just another example of how their whole approach was like, if something's standing in the way, it's got to be eliminated. Yeah, and it was, it's, again, Carmack and Romero specifically, both of them, they were always seemed to be willing to do whatever it took to just keep moving on. It was like if something started to become a burden, it was time to trim the fat. 
it was time to get rid of it. Right. And so, regardless of old friendships or stuff. And so, it might have, I mean, some of the, I don't think Carmack felt any pangs. Romero might have felt some pangs. But they were going to do what it took to move on. Well, luckily for Tom, he did immediately get another job. He went to work for Apogee with Scott Miller and be a game designer. But they I, needed to replace him, so they brought in this guy named Sandy Peterson. And Sandy was a, a Mormon, and I guess that kind of was alarming to Romero because they were working on these very violent games. You know, how was he going to react to that? Right. Carmack was almost against having him at all because he thought, well, you know, this is a religious person. We're doing a game that's about hell and demons and, and satanic themes, and I just don't want somebody around who's going to be objecting to that. But they realized when they talked to Sandy that he had no problem with it. And, and what was interesting, too, is that Romero, his... Uh, you know, like always, he wanted it to be raw and brutal, and his levels in Doom kind of reflected that. And in contrast, Sandy's were cerebral and strategic, so you kind of had this variation that was really cool in Doom, where you had these brutal levels where you just went blowing stuff away, and then other levels where you had to think about it a bit before you could clear them, so. In Halloween of uh, 93, this is, re I think, really when Doom kind of changed to the point where, um, it became a game that we really remember. Mm -hmm. Carmack told Romero he was going to add network code to Doom. And then all he really had to do was figure out the IPX networking portion, which only, I don't know. And this was in order to add network multiplayer. Network multiplayer, yeah. And two weeks later, Carmack had uh, two computers networked and working. On one of the screens, you could see the first-person view. On the other, you could see the third-person view and move the people around. Which, to me... You know, we're software developers. When you develop software, you kind of put it together and you think, yeah, that's what it'll be like. But then when you... When you really see it come together, it, it kind of yeah. takes on this whole different vibe. Yeah. And I, I bet that's what they felt like when they first oh, yeah. saw that. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm moving wow. it, and it's on your screen, dude. Yeah. That's first person. <laughs> you knew what you were programming, but you, until you see it, you don't get that. When you, know? when you see it, and it actually works. Because, yeah. you know, oftentimes you'll be trying this stuff, and then it never actually works. But yeah. you do it, and it works. It's, it, yeah. it's so amazing. So Carmack said, you know, with this technology that they had in place, he was going to be able to put four players in for network play, at least, you know, local area networks, and two players could play it over the modem. So I guess the networking portion of Doom became an immediate hit around the id office. Uh, Romero said it was sort of like bo a boxing match, but it was to the death. He goes, well, really, it's a death match. So that's where the term death match came yeah, from. I never knew that, that he yeah. owned the phrase death match. Yeah. So uh, people were clamoring for Doom because it had announced a release date and everybody was into Wolfenstein, you know, and they wanted this game really bad, and it, it, I guess it slipped a bit. And I remember this. People would even write poems. There was a poem the night before Doom, and it, it talked about, you know, getting Doom is going to be so great. So a lot of people really wanted this game. And what's kind of interesting is on uh, December 9th, Joseph Lieberman, uh, Senator, declared that the video game industry had to put some kind of voluntary rating system in place, you know, for these games. And on December 10th, the next day, was the day that it was to release the do <laughs> Doom. So I thought it was kind of odd. Yeah. The 9th, they say you got to put this voluntary rating system in, but, you know, obviously it didn't apply to Doom, so because uh, it was going to be released the next day. Since they weren't uh, publishing this through Scott Miller, you know, who used to upload it to the BBSs and such, they needed to find a place to distribute it. And I guess an administrator at the University of Wisconsin said, you can go ahead and upload it on my FTP site. And people were just hammering the site on the 10th. Waiting and, for it to be released. Right, waiting for it to be released. And I was one of them. <laughs> I was totally like hammering on the site. And I kept connecting and it would say like, you know, 125 person limit, blah, blah. And eventually like I got through and I thought I was going to be able to download the game. And all there were was a bunch of messages people had uploaded saying, like, where the hell is Doom? When's it going to be out there? Like, <laughs> well, and this is, this is back in the days when people were naive about demand. I mean, nowadays, when you're going to put stuff up to mirrors and such, 
you know, you re- you release it, you put it up to the mirrors before letting anyone have any idea where it's going to be. And it's only after that that you let everyone know. But they had told uh, everybody, In it's going to be here at with God yeah. this time. And yeah. then, of course, it's a problem. Right. So we were all on the server, you know, and I kept doing, uh, you know, directory listing so I wouldn't get disconnected. <laughs> so and eventually I did get disconnected and I think I know why. It said that when he they went to upload it, the server was full, so they booted everybody. Well, the, the, the first they tried to just upload the the number of people real quick or uh, raise the limit on the server so that the people from Doom could connect real quick. But there were so many people hammering it that even when they raised the limit, it immediately filled up before the people from ID could uh, could connect. So then they had to boot everyone. Yeah, so they eventually did get it up after the boot, and I, yeah. I downloaded it that night. First night, you know it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and people became immediately obsessed with Doom. And it wasn't the single player, although I was shocked when I played the game because the differences from Wolfenstein were yeah. huge. Yeah. But people were into the multiplayer. Uh, do you guys remember playing multiplayer on Doom at all? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. What about you, John? We would stay after work at the office in order to play multiplayer Doom on the network because we didn't have networks at home, and the... the uh, Stuff at work was faster anyway. Uh, Doom, not so much. I'll, I'll get to the to when we get to. Uh, uh, you didn't play Doom. Can you not call yourself a gamer? Single player. I, oh, okay, single uh, but, player Doom. Yeah. I remember a friend at, at OSU. We connected via modem and played it, and I was like, "This is insane!" And we we were like, "Wow, check this out!" And uh, and my girlfriend at the time would, was coming over. He's like, "Who is that?" I'm like, "That's so and so. He's at his house playing it." And we were just like. You know, this was insane. We couldn't believe this was happening, that this technology was possible. So, so they were bringing in... Oh, go ahead, Woody. Oh, I was just going to say, I got the same thing. I played a lot of the single player, but I didn't have any friends who were nerds at the time. So I, there, <laughs> I didn't get to experience the do, the, the do multiplayer because it didn't have the anonymous. You had to have a friend who actually would play with you. So I it had was, no friends. It was getting $100,000 a day for sales of Doom. Not bad. And uh, everybody was obsessed with Deathmatch, including the people at id. Romero, Romero especially. played yeah. it all day. And they got into breaking stuff like old keyboards and monitors. They'd be like cursing at each other, playing this Deathmatch, and throwing and breaking stuff around the, uh, around the office. So. so id decided to work together with a company called GTI, Good Times Interactive, to produce a commercial version of Doom called Doom 2. Yeah. And it was basically the same engine, just with new levels. Right. And this GTI company, they were selling into mainstream stores like Walmart. And there was some discussion over whether to go this route because they had already done pretty good for themselves just by having shareware. You know, do they really need to go into retail stores? But what they decided was Doom was a big hit among gamers, among technical people. But if they could get into Walmart, if they could get into the retail, they could make it a huge, huge hit. Yeah, so... GTI agreed to give them a $2 million marketing budget for Doom. And it's also worth noting that Doom 2 was the first game to receive an M rating. So, <laughs> yeah. So it did really well. Um, and at this time, uh, I guess Romero and Carmack went out and bought their uh, famous Ferrari Testarossas, which we see that. You've seen that picture, right, of them. It's kind of a dorky picture, but them standing by their Testarossas. Yeah. It's a very dorky picture. <laughs> Didn't they have the uh, mullets? <laughs> no. That was great. You mean like yours? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have lots of hair, people. <laughs> so, uh, I guess the mod community also sprang up around Doom because they designed it to allow for modding. They had these uh, files called WAD files. Which, yeah. Remember that? Expanding your WAD file. And, uh, which I installed <laughs> yesterday, and my WAD file, I gotta say, expanded very fast on a modern PC. <laughs> but WAD stood for Where's All My Data? Um, 
and uh, people started creating many different versions of Doom. And I guess Carmack even gave away a lot of their editing tools that they used in-house. Well, by making the data file for the game separate from the rest of the game, I mean, it's an idea that seems obvious now, but so it made da- it much easier for people to make their own levels. And the data was like the maps, the graphics, the artwork. So just by, if you were able to replace the WAD file, you could have the same engine, but have totally new levels, graphics, things like that. And they also released some of the editing tools. And this was the first. This was the first time that a developer had given away for free the tools that you would need to edit the levels for the game. Right. So with the Doom engine done, I guess Carmack started to focus on ports. I guess Atari gave him 250000 to port it to the Jaguar, which, that's sad. Because <laughs> I, I think, I don't, maybe Carmack's the only person that had a Jaguar. So, uh, but going... Going back to the giving away the tools, i got to say one more example of their foresight, Romero and Carmack's foresight, is that um, they were the ones who insisted on releasing the tools because they were gamers and they remembered modifying games back in the day and they knew that that was something that they wanted other people to be able to do and they knew it would be popular. The other people in the company were really nervous about this, the idea of giving away some of your property. And not only that, they were worried that... If they gave away the editing tools, people's own levels that they had made would be competing with their yeah. own attempts to sell additional right. levels. Right. So it was just, again, where they were, they had the insight that no one else did. All right. So I guess during this time when uh, Carmack's doing all these ports, Romero was uh, absent. He was off being the nerd rock, rock star, is the way they kind of put it in the book. Giving interviews to the media, talking yeah. to fans. Yeah. And they hired American McGee. Is that his, is that his name? Yeah, American his McGee. Name. Yeah. yeah. He's done a lot of games, right? Uh, to help them complete Doom 2. And I guess of the 32 levels in Doom 2, Romero only did six. So American took over a lot of the work uh, that, that took place in uh, Doom 2. Yep. They were also licensing their engine to other companies to produce games based on the Doom engine. So Romero was also working on uh, helping a company called Raven produce a game called Hexen and the follow-up to that Heretic, which used the Doom engine. And this was a fantasy, uh, sort of a D&D themed version of Doom. I guess on October 10th, 1994, Doom 2 was released. And then it's on to the big game, the game I remember most. Yes. Quake. Good break. Yes. And I guess the idea for Quake came, again, from Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, it was one of Carmack's characters. He was a very strong character that carried a powerful hammer of thunderbolts. And Romero was completely into the idea that they would have a fantasy-based game, uh, unlike Doom, that was sort of high-tech space marines meets demons. And Carmack wanted it to be the most immersive experience yet. And it would allow uh, group play, and I guess that was 16 players over over the the internet was the uh, goal for the game. So Quake turned out to be a much more difficult game to program than I guess Carmack had anticipated. And he also felt that Romero was, you know, absent. In the past, he was there with him working on the game, but at this particular time, he was off being the uh, nerd rock star, as it were. And I think this was really the start. This was where the split really started to occur, because they talked about in the past, Romero had always been, you know, he'd been off the wall, totally different personality than Carmack, but he had always been down there in the trenches working day in and day out with Carmack to, you know, see what the engine is doing, work with it as it develops. Right. So to make up for the fact that Romero wasn't there, I guess Carmack convinced Michael Abrash from Microsoft to go ahead and take a job with id. And in addition, they had American McGee, who would take over the lead in uh, designing levels for Quake. But in November of 1995, there was very little of anything to see for the game. <laughs> uh, Adrian and Kevin were off you know, producing this artwork based on these initial fantasy ideas. 
And the employees at id just started to really hate the two different Johns. They thought Romero was off being the nerd rock star. Carmack was so heads down in his engine, it had been nine months, and there was no like end in sight for uh for So there was, yeah, scene. there was no guidance. Carmack, there wasn't anything coming out of him or nothing anyone understood. <laughs> and Romero, who had always been the tie between Carmack and everyone else, was just absent, out doing publicity more like. So one thing Carmack did early on in the development of Quake, which might not have been the best idea, is he went to bulletin boards and posted messages about how it amazing... It was Romero, not Actually, Carmack. it was Romero. Was, was Romero. it Romero? It was Romero. Yeah, it was Romero. Had gone. Okay, sorry. It's Romero. He, he would post these messages about how incredible Quake was going to be, how it was going to blow everything away, how it was going to make Doom look like Pong, and he got everybody excited, but at the same time, the longer that they had to wait and they didn't see Quake actually being delivered, the more people got frustrated. Right. So he was great at publicity, not so good at managing expectations. Right. <laughs> so what's interesting is kind of for the first time I think in Carmack's life, Quake really started to break him. You know, he felt the pressure of not being able to finish his engine. He kind of started to take it out on other people, at least that's kind of what I read. He started to resent others thinking they really didn't work enough. He sent out like disciplinary emails giving people letter grades, which I thought was great. <laughs> <laughs> he even wrote and installed software on Romero's machine to track when he was working so he could say, hey, you only worked X amount of hours. What are you doing? <laughs> it's great. So fed up with all this, uh, Sandy, uh, the, who was a level designer that they brought up, the Mormon, and uh, American decided to drop the early fantasy game concept and essentially just do Doom 3. Not the Doom 3 you know, the Quake version of Doom 3, but just an, a subsequent version that's very much like Doom. So the others eventually agreed... Romero obviously didn't want this. He wanted this fantasy game concept based on what they had done with Dungeons and Dragons and this uh, thunder, this hammer of thunderbolts. But uh, Carmack told Romero, you know, you haven't been here, and it's my decision to make. Well, it's where it really built because American and Sandy they had actually done a bunch of levels based on this their new idea, the space, the space thing. And Romero and Carmack said, Romero, if you wanted to do your ID, where's the money? You haven't you haven't produced any levels. They yeah. have product. We're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess at the same time, Doom 2 had hit 80 million in sales through GTI Interactive. So it was just raking it up. But they kind of made a, an, a weird decision at this point for Quake. They said, you know, we're going to release the game as shareware for $9.95, but we're going to distribute the full version on the same disc so gamers can call up and unlock it for $50. So that they changed from even the model that was working real well to something that was kind of different. So in 1996, uh, the team working on Quake, they were in obviously perpetual crunch mode. They hired on a guy, Tim Willitz, Willitz? Is that Willitz. Willitz. and he was a guy who did a lot of mods uh, on uh, Doom, and he came in and did started doing level design. So he was like the first guy that they hired from the mod community, which is kind of cool. And he ended up being the person who was going to be responsible for the opening levels of Quake instead of Romero. And I guess Romero was really upset about that. Yeah, Carmack liked his levels best, and so Carmack said, we're going with him. Whereas Romero had always got to be the one who did the levels that were on the shareware. Right. So at this point, Romero could kind of see the writing on the wall. He was kind of out of favor with Carmack. He knew he was going to have to do something else. So he uh, gave a call to Tom Hall, who was over at Apogee, which changed their name to 3D Realms. Uh, and those are the guys that released Duke Nukem, which was an awesome game. Yeah. we got to talk about Duke, Duke Nukem in, an, in another show, we got to do a show about yeah. Duke Nukem yeah. because that was a game that we played even more obsessively than Doom. Yeah. So what's <laughs> interesting about this, I found when reading this book, is that Tom was stuck on a project that had just barely started called Prey, and this was 1996. There's a game coming <laughs> out from 3D Realms called Prey <laughs> 10 years later, right? Yeah. So they've been working on Prey for 10 years. 
Aren't they also, they're working on Duke Nukem Forever, so they don't have a really good track record for getting stuff out quickly. Although Duke Nukem Forever might be one of the most ironically named projects ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. So Tom and and Romero obviously wanted to start a new company um, as soon as Romero left, so they kind of discussed that in this phone call. So, you know, it was getting time. They just had to, to get this game out. But the levels done by the different people within the team were very disjoint. Uh, some of the levels that were done by American and Sandy were medieval. Some were futuristic, which is kind of depending on who did them. So they, to make up for this, they came up with this concept of a slipgate device, which was like a time-traveling <laughs> device, to make up for the fact that these levels were totally disjoint. Right. They decided to design the story around explaining what they'd built. Again, just like, <laughs> with the, just like the sprites that were barrels, yeah. they, they took a clever approach to how to tie this together. Yeah. So on June 22nd, 1996, Quake is finally released. And right after it released, they forced Romero to resign. Yeah. But Quake was a big success, and people loved it. People loved the deathmatch, and the big competitions of deathmatch play sprung up everywhere. So what are you guys' memories of uh, of Quake? I remember playing this obsessively. The multiplayer in the in the labs and, and at the school, yeah. just playing this with people online nonstop. It was the first game that I really became obsessive arcade about. Yeah, same here. Uh, we, we played that game, whether it be modem to modem connection or, or at the school, uh, just uh, way too much. My grades uh, suffered. Uh, <laughs> uh, couldn't get enough of Quake. Now, the shareware experiment that we talked about, where they would send out the shareware version that you could unlock... Uh, that turned out not to be so great for id. <laughs> Why? Because people figured out how to just hack the version to unlock it without paying the fee. John? Who would do that? I... Oh, that's <laughs> sad. Jeez. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I, was, I did purchase Quake, I gotta say. Just to make that clear. Okay, go ahead. But Carmack started to explore 3D acceleration hardware as the next evolution in how to make a game engine. And he ported Quake to OpenGL. And at the same time, a lot of people left id uh, sandy and michael and jay wilbur all left so romero's new company with tom uh, i guess they called it ion storm and their model was design is law as opposed to id where they were kind of driven by the technology of the engine well it's kind of funny too because they're the designers right so yeah <laughs> by saying design is law it's like we're the law um they made a deal with idos who would pay them three million dollars per game and four million dollars for the subsequent rights for consoles I guess Romero wanted to make an epic shooter based on Daikatana. How do you pronounce that? Daikatana. So that was uh, the name of the sword, remember, from yeah. the Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah, and the game was uh, going to utilize a Quake engine. I guess before Romero left, he made sure that he had this agreement with id that he could use any of their game engines, engines as long as they had already released a game that used it. So that was pretty cool. So they were going to use a Quake engine. They really had to focus on the design for this game. I guess the press just totally fell in love with Ion Storm because, of course, Romero is the outward one, right? Talking to the press and doing all these things. And I remember that. Do you remember some of those articles yeah. would come out just yeah. talking about how Daikatana was just going to be the, the next great thing? It was going to blow everything away. Right. People were very excited about it. And Romero did have that rock star personality where he right. could go out and talk to people and get people excited. So at the same time, you know, he's talking to the press. I guess he's also slinging mud at id, right? You know, he's, I, he was definitely hurt that he was forced to resign. I guess one of the stories that kind of uh, shows that best is Carmack's F40 got hit, and Romero sent him an email that just contained the word karma. So (laughs) basically pointing out, hey, buddy, you fired me too bad your F40 got hit. 
he also misled the press on what he what he did it did, saying he was responsible for a lot more than than he really did. So at the same time that they're working on uh, Daikatana at ID, they're working on Quake too. And I guess unlike Quake, uh, which was a very long project, you know, and it was hard for ID to release, you know, a lot of people left and got upset. Uh, the team was very cohesive on Quake 2, and they were getting along very well, and the technology in Quake 2 was going to be very impressive. Uh, Carmack, and one reason it was so impressive is obviously 3D acceleration hardware, which is kind of spurred on by the release of Doom. You know, all these companies come out with these 3D cards. Carmack's going to take full advantage of that for Quake 2. So you can, I, I remember when I saw the difference. I, we'll get to it in a bit, but it was a huge difference between Quake and Quake 2. So now we're in 1997, and E3 is coming up. And Daikatana was slated for a Christmas release. Right. And this and, is really when they came out with those now infamous ads. And these were crazy. I don't know who approved these. But these were ads for Daikatana. And it basically said, uh, John Romero's about to make you his bitch. Is that what, is that what it is? That was then, the text. Then under that, there was a tagline that said, suck it down. <laughs> no, I know. I, I still think that seems like clever ideas to me. Because it's... <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, you might need to be on another podcast. No, but but the thing is, just because it, it's it's more it's playful, you know. It's like it was his whole thing because when he used to go to do death matches and stuff, they he'd scream that at the other gamers Suck and got this down. going. Yeah. Suck and, it down. Yeah. So it was just, I think, I, I definitely, when I would see those, would take it as, you know, playful teasing. But I think a lot of people took it personally. Like, John Romero is telling me to suck it down. And so I, 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 it, it turned out I think it offended a lot of people, or at least pissed yeah. them off. So I guess uh, Eidos made uh, Daikatana kind of front and center because this is the game that's really going to put them on the map, you know, and obviously Ion Storm as well. And gamers were like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but uh, they weren't really uh, enthusiastic about it, and they weren't really sure why, until Romero went over and saw Id's booth, and that's where you saw Quake 2. And Quake 2, on the other hand, was awesome looking. It had new lighting effects that were only made possible by the latest 3D graphics cards. It just looked incredible. Do you, do you remember the first time you saw Quake 2? I remember because I fired the gun and like yellow like went on yeah. the wall all the way down. It was like, what the heck? It was just awesome, the lighting effects and the... It was incredible. It was a huge upgrade. You know, obviously a large part in due to the uh, the 3D hardware that was available. So knowing that, Romero knew that to be successful, he would have to use the Quake 2 engine in his game. But therefore, since the contract said it had to be released products, he would have to wait till after Quake 2 was released to get the source code to that engine. Right. And people at Ion Storm didn't really think that was a good idea. They were like, our game, we could release it, you know... And we should just get it out on the current engine and start working on they something else. They spent a ton of time working hard to get it out on this one engine. They were going to have to redo everything. To well, they didn't know the they were going to have to redo everything. That's kind of the point, uh, right? They basically, uh, Romero thought it was going to be a quick kind of port. But while they're waiting for the source uh, code to be released, uh, you know, obviously they're not making money at Ion Storm, so they needed to do something. So they started acquiring different development houses. And that's where they brought in Warren Spector, who did System Shock. And brought his team on board, which is a, a great game. It was a great game. Yeah. So in February of 88, 98, sorry, uh, Romero finally got the source code to Quake 2. And he was shocked to find that it was completely different than the engine for Quake. And it was going to be a huge amount of work to get Daikatana ported over and working with the Quake 2 engine. And his development team quit. And yeah. they said they just didn't think that the game would ever get done. And then I guess in October of 99, Eidos purchased 51% of Ion Storm, so they, they kind of had the controlling, you know, controlling interest. interest in it. 
But on April 21st, 2000, Daikatana is released. And it was... And how was the game received, John? Uh, uh, poorly. <laughs> what did you think of it? You were so one of the I people that of played all, it. Of all, of all the people in this room, I think John might be the only one who actually played this. Right. Well, I, I played the demo. I, I downloaded a huge download. I think it was over 100 megs. Uh, but it, it, upon loading it... Um, Man, it was really tough to make out the 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 gameplay. Uh, I never really got a chance to analyze because this, what was on my screen was was so hard to decipher <laughs> what I was looking at. I think I'm, the, the the first you, you open up, you're in a like a like a like a some sort of catacomb. There's some water, uh, standing water on the floor. It's reflecting the uh, color, the light lights of uh, off the this green moss on the walls. Nice. It all blends together. Sounds great. And you know, if you if there was uh, you know uh, you know a corner to turn, you'd never know. Uh, it was just it, it, <laughs> nice. Your screen was basically green. Yeah, it was and, green. I and, like green uh, screen, so green I can maybe I dig that game. Yep. I, I, eventually, I made it outside. By that, that time, I, it, it had taken so much uh, mental uh, effort. Uh, I was exhausted, and uh, I couldn't play anymore. Um, and I, it looks like uh, I'm not alone. As um, yeah, there was only 41,000 copies sold in the U.S. Wow. 41,000. <laughs> That's amazing. Right. Well, even more than that, my favorite quote was just reading about it. They said, even if you manage to get out of there, the, for the whole first level, the only thing you get to fight is like swarms of gnats or something. Well, that sounds good. Awesome. <laughs> well, Bugs is yeah. Bugs is good. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime you put Tasty. Bugs in a game, dude. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Intentionally. And, and what was, does anyone remember? The weapon of choice, right? No. Probably a sword. Sword, yeah. So you're oh. fighting bugs with, with swords. swords. Right? That so. makes sense, dude. I do that all the time. Yeah, it was, it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> Have you seen The Karate Kid? <laughs> oh, he's chopsticks. That was chopsticks. Yeah. Do you remember the game Karate Kid where you had the chopsticks? Yeah. You had to catch the fly? Anyway. Well, honestly, I don't even remember what the weapon was, but uh, I just thought, you know, it's Daikatana. So. Yeah. Painful. Yeah, painful. So and uh, John wasn't alone. Uh, all reviews were negative. I don't think there were any positive ones, except for maybe from Romero. And uh, at the same time, Warren Spector's Deus X, Deus X. got released, oh. and it and was overwhelmingly positive. Have you guys played Deus Ex? Oh, yeah, yes. that game yes. is awesome. That game is and awesome. to our listeners out there, if you haven't played Deus Ex, you can still get it. You can get it for the PC. You can get it for Xbox. It is an incredibly great game, and it's so open-ended. There's so many different ways to get through each level. You can use stealth. You can use brute force. There's, It's just great. It's incredible. I agree. And uh, Warren Spector's other games, System Shock, System Shock 2, is uh, great awesome. as well. So, anyway. so uh, Eidos, at that point, just uh, basically fired Tom and Romero. And uh, <laughs> in response, they started a, uh, a company called Monkey Stone Games, and it would focus on mainly handheld and cell phone games. And after a period of that, they left, and I guess they kept it going, but they joined Midway. It's kind of their day job. And I guess in August of 2005, Romero left Midway, and he's working on a yet-to-be-announced uh, MM, uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, uh, at a new company. And they, there's really no information on it. But I know in the book... They said that he went over and talked to Carmack and negotiated uh, rights to use the Quake universe in a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. So I'm wondering, even though no information has been released, is that what he's working on? It's hard it to say. It seems possible, yeah. So Carmack at the same time, you know, at, he went on to do, obviously, Doom 3, which we all remember, that's pretty recent. And now he's working on Enemy Territory Quake Wars, which I guess won tons of awards at this E3 and looks outstanding. <laughs> And he also got into building his model rockets. Yeah. Or, yes. Not real, real rockets. rockets. They're Sorry. not model rockets. Model rockets and real rockets. Model rockets is what I used to do as a kid where, you know, the rocket's like two feet high and uses a tiny little engine. He's building real 
Rockets. Into like, the, the X Prize. So, he was yeah. one of the teams working on yeah. the X Prize. Right. Yeah. So one thing we should talk about real quick is how can you play these games today? And I spent yesterday, along with preparing for this exceptionally long retro respect section, <laughs> downloading and installing some of these. And pretty much all the shareware versions are available on the net. You can download them and play them, and it's a blast to go through. I started out with Commander Keen, played it. I played, you know, some uh, Wolfenstein, even put on some Duke Nukem. Went up, played Quake, Quake Two, and I'm telling you, it's great. It is fun. To and there's play a those version games. of Doom for the PSP, right, Chris? Yeah, Doom PSP, and there's even one wow. that they're working on for the Nintendo DS. All right, so I'm gonna pick that up as well. So check it out. So you guys should go check out those games because it's great to go back and see kind of how technology progressed and how quickly it was able to progress. And once again, this this uh, episode was based around the book Masters of Doom by David Kushner which is a very interesting yeah. book, and I recommend I, that you go out and read it. I would absolutely recommend it, because one of the things I, I found reading this that really struck me was, I in this whole story, I've been following Doom and Quake forever, and I had always, from what I'd picked up, thought that Carmack was this modest, you know, just, and, you know, kind of brilliant guy who had cranking out these engines, and Romero was this flamboyant um, jerk, basically, and reading this book, it made me much more sympathetic to Romero. I still, I won't <laughs> say he's the he's the good guy or even better, but it's definitely a much more even. They were it, both jerks. They were, <laughs> they both had issues. And at the same time, you know, sometimes I think personality like that is what it takes to do revol- create revolutions. So maybe that's what it needed to have Doom and Doom Three. But it was, it definitely wasn't one sided. And the other thing I thought was interesting, a fact about the book I read later, is Romero had a comment on. Um, one of the websites somewhere where he said that the publisher of that book wouldn't publish it until both right. he, Romero and Carmack signed off on the accuracy. So I still don't know that that book's totally accurate, but I do think at least it presents a balanced viewpoint, and it, it was very interesting. So the other thing uh, I thought about when uh, reading this book is uh, we talked last time about Sierra, how they basically sold out. Kind of they, they got really big and they kept diversifying. Right. If you think it's kind of just the opposite, it is still around today producing what they produced 10 years ago. <laughs> well, again, so that's, I think that goes back to Carmack because they always talk about the other people always wanted to get into do their own publishing and stuff. Right. And Carmack always said, all I want to do is write games. I don't want to get anywhere near publishing. I don't want anything to do with that. And he was always the one who said, no, I don't want to expand. We don't need to. We don't need to go public. I'm making plenty of money. And the other thing I found really interesting is, you know, it just goes to show that you don't really have to have a great business sense to succeed because they really (laughs) didn't, right? They just kind of got lucky to be the right place at the right time. The real key was they had a perfect set of individuals to go together. Uh, from they, Adrian, they had who the, had worked in the hot, the you know, art, the, but he'd worked the, on gruesome stuff, and that yeah. worked great. You had Romero, who's really good at at uh, design, the and level gameplay. design, the engine design, right? And you had obviously, uh, yeah, I mean, just a very good cohesive set of people, and and with that kind of thing, I mean, anybody, I think, if they have the right set of people, can succeed. The interesting thing to think about too is think about all the things that they turned down. They turned yeah. down the Sierra deal. They turned down this. They turned down that. They turned down all these jobs, and. You know, what would have happened if they had accepted one of those deals? You know, maybe they would have uh, wound up working for somebody else and never making that game that they had within them, yeah. you know. so The other thing that, that was interesting is just how much of an impact they've had on gaming, right? I mean, they had so many firsts. The first M-rated game, the first really to take advantage of 3D hardware. Just so many things that they did pushing the edge of, you know, violence in video games. And it's just like... This uh, group of people really changed the gaming environment, and the games we see today owe a lot to them. So. Oh, yeah. So, anyways, uh, hopefully we didn't ramble too long, and people are still there listening. Uh, so, uh, I just want to say uh, thanks for uh, listening to our show, and if you could, please check us out. 
at at twitchasylum.com check out the forums also please if you would give us positive comments on iTunes as well as the Yahoo podcast page and if you're on Xbox Live add us to your friends list right and we'll uh, show you that our scores are much inferior to yours (laughs) alright we'll see you in two weeks bye bye peace out some of the music provided tonight was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network you can check them out at music.podshow.com we'll see you in two weeks